Fresh from the hit film Clueless, Paul Rudd is Tommy Doyle, a character with a special link to the Halloween legacy. My character, Tommy, uh, comes from the first film. And Jamie Lee Curtis was babysitting this little kid. Tommy. Tommy Doyle. Tommy Doyle. I was only eight years old when I saw him. And I was one of the lucky ones. I survived. Welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. I'm Alex. I'm Julio, and thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Help promote the algorithm and spread the word. You can also find us on SoundCloud to subscribe and review. And don't forget to visit our main website, wearethecontrarians.com. Follow us on Twitter at Contrarian Prime. And to like us on Facebook, visit facebook.com slash contrarianprime. And if you have the willpower to keep up with our pretentious ramblings, you can follow us individually at Contrarian Alex for myself and at Ovnio for Julio. That's O V N I O. Now, time for the podcast. All right, I am recording for Contrarian's Corner for Halloween 6, The Curse of Michael Myers. Hello, and welcome back to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. Welcome back to Haddonfield Nights here uh, for our fourth uh, installation of, uh, or excuse me, installment. We're not installing anything in your house. Our fourth fourth installment in our six-part series of Halloween as we journey the canonical chronology of one Michael Myers. And this is The Curse of Michael Wires, Halloween 6, Halloween 666 as the original working title, and then eventually just Halloween Curse of Michael Myers. It's much cleaner that way. <laughs> just drop uh, the six. I, I like that the title makes sense. Just from the beginning. I like The Curse of Michael Myers is indeed about The Curse of Michael Myers. You know, the other Halloween subtitles... They're kind of they were going for flashiness, but they didn't really make much sense. Which one's Revenge of Michael Myers? Was that five? That is part five, yes, sir. Okay, was he really doing anything particularly vengeful in that one? He was um, vindicating. It should have been the vindication of Michael Myers because when he killed <laughs> Tina, audiences around the world erupted in in cheers. Uh, was seven going to be the emancipation of Michael Myers? <laughs> <laughs> the assassination of Michael Myers <laughs> by the coward Laurie Strode. Uh, and the tagline for this is uh, Terror Never Rests in Peace, which doesn't make any sense because he didn't die at the end of five. But hey, what are you going to do? Well, some people um, thought so. The biggest contribution about the theatrical poster for this is the image on it is probably the most widely used uh, image of Michael for merchandising and decals and stickers and things of that nature. It's, I think, the most recognizable portrait of him. I, I have it on a T-shirt. It's uh, just a, it's got like a cold blue sheen to it. It's the mask kind of faded in the dark. The eyes are blacked out, and he's holding up the knife. It's definitely the the most iconic in terms of 
the one that's been used the most for marketing and merchandising. Uh, I think that's where the iconography of Halloween 6 ends. Um, but, well, it is the the film debut of a, a Hollywood legend. It, it has a legacy. It, it absolutely does. And we'll be getting to that uh, shortly in just a moment and then uh, more so in the real talk segment of today's podcast. It, it was uh, an act of fate, though. It wasn't so much a curse as it was uh, the fate of Michael Myers for us here today. While this is going to be released on October 10th, uh, it is currently September 29th of 2020. And as Fangoria pointed out for us today, Julio, today is the 25th birthday of this movie. It was released 25 years ago today on September 29th, 1995. Yep. Couldn't have written it any better presidential debate what presidential debate we here at the contrarians we got our priorities straight uh i'll tell you this this didn't leave me with nearly as much anxiety or headache as watching the debate would have so i am i content with that decision i was surprised by watching this movie as it twist and turned uh in a way that i was not surprised at all just by reading the the live tweets and play-by-plays from the debate so yeah, I think I made the right choice. <laughs> Except at the end, where Trump held up his hand and the thorn tattoo appeared on his wrist, and <laughs> no, no, and then it all made sense. That that would that's the perfect ending right there. So, if this is your first time tuning into the Contrarians, as I've said on a couple of our Halloween episodes here, it's very likely due to the rabid at times cult like fan base of slasher movies in particular Halloween wouldn't be surprised if we're getting a few new listens uh, much like Halloween three, this one has amongst the most devout and hardcore audience in the franchise. So we may be picking up a few listeners. So if this is your first time, thank you for joining us. Uh, if you're a returning listener, much appreciated as always. Allow us a moment here while we explain uh, what we do here on this podcast to any and all potential new listeners. Here on The Contrarians, we like to rage against the Rotten Tomatoes machine, as we say. We seek out a movie on Rotten Tomatoes that is highly rated, oftentimes known as Certified Fresh, and make a case for maybe why it should be taken down a few pegs. On the other side of that coin, uh, find a movie that's uh, we usually aim for about 30% and below, one of those nasty green splotches known as Rotten, and you know, kind of point out its positive merit. Regardless of how we feel about it, we make a case for you know what might be good about it. Uh, being that... Halloween, The Curse of Michael Myers is at 9%. We will definitely <laughs> it does be speaking. It, it qualifies as rotten, and we will be speaking uh, to the maybe the positive aspects of it and of Paul Rudd's acting debut. I think that will be a, a constant throughout the entire episode, not just Contrarian's Corner. Safe bet. And Julio, what do we do in the second portion of the show? Well, once we're done pretending to be positive about Halloween 6 and Contrarian's Corner... We will switch into real talk where we will be real about Halloween 6. And honestly, I don't know, Alex, I, you know, we've talked about it quite a bit, but I don't know how you really feel as far as, uh, I mean, I kind of get a feeling you don't think it's a good movie. More than a feeling. I know you don't think it's a good movie. <laughs> but As Boston would say, it is more than a feeling. Yeah, but I, I don't know exactly where you rank it. You know, I heard you talk about... Just recently, in the past few episodes, you know, I've heard you talk about Rob Zombie's Halloween and uh, Season of the Witch as movies that I don't think you consider 
great movies, but movies that you you can see some good things about it. And uh, yeah. I'm curious if the same thing is going to happen with Halloween Six. And I also I've been pretty coy about my feelings. I just watched this movie for the first time, and uh, I think the only thing I told you was I texted you that this was uh, Doctor Loomis's Logan, and uh, <laughs> that's. That's as much as I'm going to say before we get into real talk about how we really feel about Halloween 6. Man, we got to I need to get a to put the two promotional stills next to each other. I need to find one of Paul Rudd and Donald Pleasance from this next to uh Hugh Jackman and Patrick Stewart and Logan. <laughs> the crossover we never knew we needed. Uh yeah, I think I think the second portion of this will lend itself to some interesting discussion. And also I'm curious how you feel about it cuz on uh, uh shit, I think it was the original Halloween episode we did, you you had mentioned about wanting some potentially convoluted backstory to the reason Michael is the way he is. So <laughs> trust me, it doesn't get any more convoluted than in this movie. So we'll see how you, you feel about that. Be careful what you wish for. So previously on X-Men, as my favorite Saturday morning cartoon would say, previously in Haddonfield, Michael Myers killed his sister in the early 60s and then... <laughs> 15 years later, freed himself to become a, uh, a go on a murderous rampage where he hunted Laurie Strode, uh, who we found out in Halloween 2 was in fact his sister, who went up for adoption after he killed uh, her, I guess it would have been her older sister. Literally, where Halloween 1 ends is where we pick up, and Jamie Lee Curtis rocks just this sub-SNL level wig for the entire movie, <laughs> and Michael just is after her, and he runs roughshod on the uh, hospital, killing everybody uh, inside until, of course, Donald Pleasance makes the ultimate sacrifice, dropping the iconic all-time line of the horror franchise in It's Tide, Michael, and blows himself and Michael up, or so we think. Two was also the first one to introduce the idea of, as they say repeatedly, Sam Hain, correctly pronounced Sawin, and the idea that Michael is associated with this darker, more cosmic meaning in the idea of you know Halloween and being a cursed night and taking it to the old pagan rituals. Halloween 3, as we covered in our last episode, took us just completely off in another direction. If you want to know our thoughts on it, we had a really good time recording that episode, so just go back, listen to our Halloween 3 season, the witch episode. Halloween 4, the return of Michael Myers. Boy, did it bring home the bacon when Michael graced the silver screen again. Michael returns to Haddonfield, after surviving being blown apart, as does Dr. Loomis. Fortunately, uh, Dr. Loomis doesn't get quite the Harvey Dent. He just has about it. He's like quarter face. He has like half of his face covered in scars. Michael returns to Haddonfield to hunt down his uh, paternal niece, uh, who I guess at some point, Laurie Strode had a daughter. Her name is Jamie Lloyd. She was uh, adopted by a local family in Haddonfield. Michael comes back to reclaim his only uh, known blood relative and basically kill anyone that gets in the way he is killed by the townspeople in that movie or so we think he's whisked away at the end of the movie down a mine shaft uh, down a creek bed somewhere in Haddonfield where some fucking witch doctor brings him back to life <laughs> and although 4 ends on an interesting promising note of Jamie Lloyd potentially becoming the new killer in the franchise we find out that she in fact was just so traumatized by the happenings of the, that night that she's essentially a mute and is living in a mental institution for children. So Michael returns to curse, stalk, kill anything that gets in his way in Haddonfield. Eventually this leads to Jamie and Michael having a moment together 
and we see Michael unmask for not the first but second time in the franchise. And she lures him away, and the local police of Haddonfield apprehend Michael and take him to the slammer. He's only to be bailed out by a mysterious man in black, a dude wearing a black trench coat, boots and spurs, and a cowboy hat for some fucking reason. And <laughs> that brings us up to where we are. Do you think I did an all right job of catching us up to speed? I mean, you did about as good a job as you could, I think, following a thread that's not really particularly connected. <laughs> so, it is important paramount monolithic even statuesque that we point out that for this episode we will be discussing the producer's cut obviously the most controversial installment in the halloween franchise due to the you know we talked about the differences between rob zombie's director's cut and theatrical version these are night and day uh we (laughs) also both in preparation watched the um uh, James A. Janice uh, hosts an online show on YouTube known as Dead Meat. He did a cut comparison of these. I've seen both versions, Julio just seeing the producer's cut, but he was able to watch that to see that these movies uh, differ significantly. So uh, I own the Blu-ray, the single Blu-ray release of the producer's cut. And Julio, did you watch this one on Amazon? Yes. Uh, Amazon, which had both options. I thought at first that it only had the producer's cut, but no, I could I could actually pick which one I oh, wanted. Okay. I went producer's cut because that's what we had agreed on. And also because if I'm going to pay for a Halloween movie, I'm going to pay for the longest one. I want <laughs> as much bang for my buck as I can buy. See, the thing is, we did the difference with uh, the Rob Zombie director's cut. And really, there's only like two big differences in there. Uh, but the story is the same. With this, we would have been it would have been tonight's presidential debate. We just put in yelling <laughs> over each other, trying to make sense of each other's version. So, but with that being said, we're going to go to what the critics said about the theatrical one. Because that's what we're looking into. The producer's cut was a long sought after project. And, you know, many bootlegs were sold until we finally got a proper release. But... When this was released theatrically, the Weinsteins got to have their cake and eat it too with this movie as they were able to uh, get exactly what they wanted from it and pull out what they wanted from it. Uh, But we will be talking about the producer's cut, which is slightly better received amongst fans and critics alike. But Julio, when this thing dropped, September 29th of 1995, what were the uh, critics saying about it? All right, I got three rotten quotes from the Rotten Tomatoes website, starting with Steve Newton from Georgia Strait who says, I would say everybody associated with this film from unrelenting series producer Mustafa Akkad on down could do with a good checkup. (laughs) Tim Brayton from Antagony and Ecstasy. The series is nader, nothing but a delivery system for murder and half glimpses of naked women. Uh, I I mean, I was going to bring it up during Contrarian's Corner. Might as well bring it up now. There is this super classy shot of, uh, you know, post-coitus where was it Tim and Beth lying in bed, and there's candlelight, and the flame from the candles is hiding Beth's nipples for most of the scene, which I thought was incredibly ingenious. Uh, Finally, Matthew Lucas from From the Front Row says, just too strange, too outlandish, and too convoluted to be frightening, serving as a constant reminder of just how far away we are from the world created by John Carpenter. And to that I say, well, good. We are five movies removed from John Carpenter's Halloween. We should be somewhere else. Got to try something new eventually. Yeah, I mean, I'm sorry. If Halloween 6 was just the same shit as the first movie, then what's the point? That That is uh, a cash grab. I'm actually happy. I welcome a sequel that goes in a new direction. Well, 
a new direction it went in, e- even though this has actually has Michael Myers in it, I would argue this goes even more off the beaten track than Halloween 3 does. Um, <laughs> but it does take us back to Haddonfield, and we open with i mean we got to get to it it's it's not even the elephant in the room it's you know it's the the coup de gras it's the wedding cake you know it's the mcdonald's french fries it's something everyone knows we have in the bag and we got to take out it's fucking paul rudd's theatrical debut <laughs> starring and introducing or introducing and starring i don't know but they, he gets both he does and uh he just gets paul rudd in the producer's cut but as Julie and i were discussing the theatrical cut they introduce him as paul stephen rudd which I'm glad he kind of ditched that because Paul Rudd's one of the easier, more memorable names. Um, but he's here. He's not quite here yet, but he does get the introducing credit, and we'll get to him shortly. But, you know, he's obviously the man of the hour in this. Um, we see who we leave off at part five. We see flashbacks to it where Jamie and fucking, uh, I don't know if you caught this. I laughed so hard at the visual of it. We see these dudes, uh, the druids, or you know, who we later find out are members of this cult, the Thorn. They're taking Michael out of the prison, and they're like hauling him, and he's got his hands and ankles handcuffed together, and he's still got the fucking mask on, and they're just hobbling him into the back of like this slammer. And uh, the visual of it, it tickled me pink, and it looks like he's being kidnapped, which is crazy. Exactly. Yeah, and he's like so much bigger than the other people. It's. The visual of it is just very amusing. Uh, but there is, of course, uh, Jamie Lloyd, Danielle Harris is there, and she's taken captive also. Uh, unfortunately, and we'll kind of talk to this in uh, the second portion of the podcast, Real Talk, Danielle Harris not reprising her role as Jamie Lloyd here. We have, uh, to me, an unknown actress in J.C. Brandy uh, playing Jamie Lloyd, and she is... She's in a bunker somewhere. It looks like they're on the set of Legends of the Hidden Temple. And <laughs> it's clear that she's in labor and she eventually gives birth to a baby that is taken by the man in black, the last figure that we saw from Halloween 5. Just based on the setting already, you can tell this is not going to be your grandpa's Halloween. It's not even your older brother's Halloween. This is just completely different. Uh, and yeah, you can tell from the very beginning. I, I like that... When it comes to this baby, the movie takes its sweet time actually telling us directly where this baby came from. But it gives us enough breadcrumbs to where we can kind of imagine the worst. Uh, Mm -hmm. Because it's at least, I don't know, I want to say at least an hour. It's it's an hour and a half movie. It's at least an hour before they actually say, yes, this is how the baby came to be. But last time we saw this girl, she was being kidnapped by a cult. And then when she's given birth, she's just basically still a prisoner and then the baby's taken away. So the chance that this was a happily conceived baby is almost non-existent. And uh, the movie lets you live with this dread for at least an hour where you just kind of waiting for them to just confirm your fears, uh, which they eventually do. But it's a... Uh, it's good. It's a, it's a very clever way, an economical way of just... Uh, giving you that sort of terror that the franchise sometimes doesn't really uh, know how to deliver. So she is, her baby's taken and she's obviously distraught about this. And one nurse uh, who I guess is trying to break away from the cult of Thorn helps free her. And they, she brings the baby and it's like, we don't have much time. 
And this is like rock and roll, Michael, right here, because it's it's basically release the Kraken type shit. They're in this underground bunker somewhere, you know, and so, for some reason, there's a nuclear fallout shelter under the city of Haddonfield in Illinois. <laughs> and Michael is essentially just released by his caretakers here at the Thorn and just told, you know, do your thing. It's um, is it Captain America that tells Hulk Hulk? Smash in the Avengers. I think so. is, is it Cap yes. that tells him that? Yeah. So yeah, the the man in black just told him, "Do your thing, cause." But are are they in Haddonfield? Because Jamie has to drive for a while before she gets, and, and then take a train or a or a a bus. You know, it's it takes her a while to get to Haddonfield. So I just assumed they were somewhere right. else. I actually I thought maybe they were in London because she when she comes out, it's just foggy all over. It's it, it looks. You're absolutely right. Uh, they. They're probably in Chicago, just a, like a you know a two-hour jaunt away. They're at some shelter under the Rosemont Horizon out in Chicago. So um, she does get free, though, and yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, she's in bad shape. She gave birth, and it didn't look like a proper medical staff was on hand to help her out with that. So she's fading by the moment. But she has the baby. She does. She's out. Uh, we get our first kill. For some reason, there's this random spike in this long corridor, and Michael picks this woman up and jams her head onto it got to talk about if not paul rudd if not you know logan himself donald pleasance then the to me the most fascinating and iconic part of this movie is the mask this is the scariest michael myers mask uh i wonder if it's for the same reason that i thought it was fascinating Uh, gets to me this mask looks like it's been through six movies it looks mm-hmm. like it's just stretch. It's like when you, you know, those really old jeans that you had maybe, you know, at the time that uh, you gain a lot of weight. So you stretch them out and then <laughs> and then you lose the weight. And those pants are just it's not even that they're too big for you. They're just already kind of misshapen by by just all the the trials and tribulations you put them through. Uh, that's what this mask looked like. Is that how you read it? Or do you have a different reason why it's creepy? I just think it looks terrifying, but to like the fit of it, it's it's to me it strikes like his best pair of pajama pants. It's perfectly worn in in all the right areas, and it fits really comfortably. The hair on it's constantly askew, uh, but yeah, it to your point, I agree. It looks like it's been through some games with him. It's um, you know, some people have their like I have a couple wrestling T-shirts that are at least twenty years old that I wear for special occasions. You know, people have their football jerseys that they've had for generations that they wear. I think this is the the traditional Michael mask. The last time uh, it really looked good, uh, but yeah, he he dispatches that nurse quickly and with no issue. Jamie again, she begins her trek to Haddonfield. Uh, she commandeers a truck from some local construction site unfortunately the truck driver when trying to figure out what's going on he's got to go to michael takes care of business with him so all we know at this point is that she's on the loose and michael is after her this is where we go back to haddonfield as she's attempting to get there uh, we go to what is present day haddonfield and we are introduced to the distant strodes the one the strodes we didn't know of (laughs) Kara Strode, who is our heroiness throughout the film, uh, her parents, John and Deborah Strode, named after John Carpenter and Deborah Hill. Oh, completely missed that. <laughs> her brother, Tim Strode, and then her little boy, uh, what was the little boy's name? Danny. Danny. Danny named Strode. after Danny Terrence from The Shining, I'm sure. 
And much like we leave off with baby Jamie, or young Jamie, I should say, in 4 and 5, it looks like he's afflicted with some sort of curse from the uh, Myers bloodline as well. As uh, So reading into this, Kara is the cousin of Lori, so I guess that would make Danny her, her second cousin? I don't know how that works. No, 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 no. No, so Kara is Lori's cousin, which means that she is Jamie's aunt, right? And she's Michael's cousin? She would be Michael's cousin, but she's not Jamie's aunt. I guess she would be Jamie's first cousin. I don't know. It's it, the, There's a relation. The, the Myers family tree has no branches on it. It just goes straight up. Uh, <laughs> it just intertwines. <laughs> it just wraps like two snakes. I mean, it doesn't anyway. matter because the main takeaway from this is that uh, John Strode is a fucking asshole. <laughs> That's the main yeah. thing. Well, and then we learn quickly that they live in the house, the, the Myers house, where all that shit went down so many years ago. Not even, It wouldn't even have been 20 years when this movie was released, Jesus. So the family dynamic is this. Kara is down on her luck, single mom, uh, her brother Tim is just kind of a dude, you know. He's he. They don't show at any point, but you know he's seen the Spin Doctors in concert at least three times, <laughs> just based on his aesthetic. Uh, you have the mom Deborah, who's very sweet and endearing and compassionate, and then you've got John, who, as you said, just a real son of a bitch, an alcoholic real estate agent who just walks over everyone and everything and does not appreciate his family at all. He calls his fucking grandson a bastard and then he backhands his daughter at breakfast. Yep. He drops, I mean, not that it matters, but he draws blood. The backhand would be bad no matter what, but the fact that he draws blood just seems to really punctuate that. Uh, And in a movie, it reminded me a little bit of the, of the Rob Zombie Halloween, which obviously we can't escape uh, four movies into Haddonfield nights, but, uh, that movie played with the idea that Michael is not the only monster in the franchise, and that that's again in play here. I not having seen a couple of the the Halloween movies that are to come, I would like to nominate this guy John Strode as probably the most hateable character in the franchise, uh, excluding the the Rob Zombie entries who are just you know pools of hatred on their own. But uh, this one, this guy is just the worst and uh and kind of by association the his wife uh deborah strode mm-hmm. she ends up looking like patricia arquette in boyhood you know it's like <laughs> come on why are you still married to this guy why aren't you putting a stop to his just the way he's abusing the entire family it was worse that whole scene with the family was much more disturbing than michael killing the two people we've seen him kill so far so it leads to uh, Kara and Tim and Tim's girlfriend, uh, I believe Beth. Yeah, Beth plays the girlfriend. Uh, they all go to school together, I guess, at the Haddonfield Community College. She parts with Danny for the day and says, you know, Grandpa didn't really hurt me, right? And her fucking nose is still bleeding. Um, but they drive down the, the street there in Haddonfield, and they see next door living to them. We get introduced to Paul Rudd, who's standing in a full-body window, just staring ominously out into the street. Uh, we find out that he he is playing the character of Tommy Doyle. Now, until it was specifically explained, did you understand that the, he was playing the little boy from the original Julio? Um, I did because you you'd brought it up before, and uh, okay. It, it, but I mean, he he kind of explains it 
fairly early into the movie, which I think is maybe one of the strokes of genius of of this sequel. Uh, because honestly, would anybody have expected that sort of, uh, I don't know, surprise, not even cameo, but, you know, just surprise resurgence of a character? We haven't seen this character, this kid, since the first Halloween. And over there, it's not like we had, he, he was one of the main characters. He was just kind of like the kid that she was babysitting. And so... For them to suddenly bring him out from obscurity and make him one of the major characters here with the motivation that makes sense. It 100% makes sense that this kid would have been traumatized by the experience and would have become obsessed with solving the mystery of uh, what drives Michael Myers. I think that's great that they turned this into a, a Tommy Doyle story, a Paul Rudd vehicle. And sort of a passing of the torch between Loomis and him. It's just uh, probably my favorite aspect of the movie. Yeah, and he's obviously traumatized from the events of his childhood. And uh, I mean, we're he's living in a boarding house next door to the Myers house uh, with uh, Mrs. Blankenship. And again, here we are. We've arrived at the main event already with Paul Rudd making his film debut. I believe that... Yes, this was filmed before Clueless, which obviously Clueless was his big breakout movie. But he's here. He looks like Paul Rudd. Honestly, he looks exactly the same now. But what we will find in this movie is that he is acting with a capital A-C-T-I-N-G. He's here to make a debut and to make an impression. He's intense in a way that I've never seen Paul Rudd be. Uh, and, and the filmmakers know what they have. I think that that has to be the joy of uh, discovering a performer. I think we've talked about this before with, with other instances where, you know, those debuts that just blow everybody's minds. And here, they kind of have to have known once they started working with Paul Rudd, who's like, oh, holy shit, this guy, he he's going to be around for a long time. And we are just showing him to the world for the first time. Like, this is the... This is Paul Rudd's party where he was just shown to society, ready to go. His bar mitzvah. Yeah, might as well be. Uh, but yeah, the camera loves him. I mean, there's these close-ups of his face, his eternally youthful face, and just the way that he's just staring down at the camera, staring out the window. It's just, uh, yeah, even before they reveal who he is and what his connection is to Michael Myers, you just know that there's something going on uh, with this guy and you just can't wait to find out what it is. So he is listening to a shock jock, a local shock jock in the Haddonfield area uh, named Barry uh, Sims. I have him as Joe Rogan on my notes. Oh, okay. So you th- you thought he, he was supposed to be Joe Rogan. Do you have any actual idea who this would have been based off of and who they really wanted to play as this character? When we finally see him, he looks like David Spade, but I'm sure that was not what they were going for. Uh <laughs> I don't know. Don't say Howard Stern because that would be too obvious. Yeah. No, that was, yeah, the idea was Howard Stern and <laughs> he was offered the part of this and he uh, politely declined to participate. But Barry Sims, I think I am just for the niche value. Have going to have to get a Barry kicks ass t shirt. Um, <laughs> he's the local, you know, famous radio host, uh, shock jock, um, punk. I'm trying to think of the other words that are used to describe him. And 
he's like the the conscience though of Haddonfield. He's the you know it's the new era. It's the '90s. Damn it! Mm-hmm. So he's he's here and everyone listens to him. So Paul Rudd's listening to him, and then we get a cut to Loomis Manor, way out in the middle of fucking nowhere. And this like man, I could I could have used a whole movie of retired Loomis. Yep. He's got this beautiful house, a roaring fireplace, a very elegant and expansive bar, and then we see him like typing his memoirs <laughs> on a uh, typewriter, wearing his glasses at the tip of his nose. And he's listening to Barry as well, and uh, caller uh, who says Michael's dead. You know, the, the, it's not a real thing. And whatever happened to that doctor that you know helped him? Isn't he dead? And we get our first Loomis line: "Oh, not dead, but very much retired." It's a calming presence to have Donald Pleasance have Sam Loomis himself back in the fold. It's a warm blanket to rub yourself in uh, in these turbulent times the 90s uh were you surprised if, i don't know if you remember the first time you watched this movie were you surprised by how much he had aged in the what it's been six years since halloween five he looks old he he looks i mean i'm not saying he looks bad but he looks old he he's he has a, a white beard and he he walks like an old man he, he walks you know he has a walking stick he has a cane and uh, his voice Sounds like an old person. It, it just, uh, it feels like once Michael was out of his life, just suddenly everything that he'd been through just hit him all at once, and it just aged him. And uh, it's it's fascinating. It's it's a new, it's a new perspective. It's a new look for for the Loomis character, which is great because I think that by by the last installment by five, we had probably pushed the the angle of oh how crazy can Loomis go? That had been pushed mm-hmm. about as far as you could go. So it's nice to see him now on a different path. Now he's sort of come down. He's, you know, writing his memoirs. He's uh, not 100% moved on from the craziness of Michael Myers, but he's sort of, uh, he's found a piece that he didn't have in the past few movies, uh, which of course makes it the most heartbreaking when he he has to come out of retirement, especially because uh, if you've watched a fair amount of movies, if you know the tropes, you kind of get the feeling from that very first shot that this is it for for the Loomis character. That that's this is this is our goodbye to him. Uh, now, do you remember getting that feeling, Alex, or were you just young and excited and just couldn't wait to see what Doctor Loomis, how much ass he was gonna kick uh, in this movie? Uh, I was more concerned about how much ass he was going to get because I mean he's a <laughs> he's definitely a silver fox here. Uh, no, I definitely, you know, thought it was uh, the end for him. And every time I watch this now, because of course, uh, uh, Loomis, uh, Donald Pleasance, did pass before this movie was released. And every time I see him, yeah, it does. It looks like a he's there to finish the mission, and it's uh, he performs it like it's a goodbye. It's it's all very endearing. If nothing else in this movie will catch your heart, it is definitely uh, this final portrayal of Loomis. Yep. So he is joined at his manor by Dr. Terrence Wynn, played by Mitchell Ryan, who I'm not sure if you know this character, Julio. Dr. Terrence Wynn, is, he was the head of Smith's Grove. Udo Kier played him in the Rob Zombie version. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he was the guy who ran the, uh, the institution, and Loomis was all livid at when Michael escaped. And he's there to ask Loomis to come back to work, because I guess he's stepping aside and he wants Loomis to take over the reins. Uh, so we have that introduced into the fray. Uh, while this is happening, while this 
huge potential opportunity for Loomis is introduced. Jamie, who's now made it to a train station somewhere outside of Haddonfield, calls in. She can't get any uh, emergency personnel on the phone, but she is able to get in touch with uh, Barry. And she calls in and says, hi, my name is Jamie Lloyd. Michael Myers is after me. They don't take her seriously. I think they cut her line. Uh, but obviously this catches the, the ire and attention of both Tommy Doyle and Loomis. Uh, begin freaking out about what's going on. Back at the actual train station, when she gets cut off, uh, Michael enters, chases her. She makes the wise decision of hiding the baby because that's it becomes clear that's what Michael's after. But we don't know that. Uh, that's that's one of the things that makes that switcheroo so awesome. You think that she's being a shitty mom uh, because at one point, you know, she's running, and then at some point she's running without the baby, and you're like, holy shit, she just she just dumped the baby. You know, you think that uh, she left the baby in the truck because what happens is Michael runs her off the road, and then she just stumbles out. We get it. We get a full, you know, we talked about with the original, the absurdity of Michael driving. We get a full-on car chase in this movie. <laughs> but wisely, wisely, you never really see Michael behind the wheel, which I think is what made it so funny in the original. You know, Michael with his mask, just, you know, putting his blinker on, the hands, you know, both at the right angles on the steering wheel. In this one, you just see the car and you know he's driving, but you never really see him behind the wheel, which makes, I think, makes all the difference. Uh but yeah, then he uh, he goes. It turns out that what she had been carrying for for that entire chase scene was not the baby; it was a roll of paper towels. <laughs> and that was just, got me. I didn't know that was going to happen. If that was if this chase scene was now, it would have been a a tube of um, disinfectant wipes because you, you know <laughs> for a while there they were a valuable currency, but now you can find them anywhere. So. He stabs Jamie, leaves her for dead, and she says, you can't have the baby, you can't have the baby. And he goes and finds the uh, paper towel roll and presumably at this point speeds away and uh, goes and buys a six-pack and just spends the night wondering where he went wrong. (laughs) Back in Haddonfield, just a ways down the road, Tommy keeps re-listening to the clip from the radio. He was recording it. We kind of see every time we get insight to where he's living, it it pulls back a little more. And it's like, you know, we see more and more of the newspaper clippings and like the, um, you know, borderline, you know, the Bjork stalker apartment is what we we're seeing the more and more we uh, get insight to it. Yeah. I mean, it kind of looks like my room with all my wrestling posters. (laughs) Just, you know, not, not as creepy. I I love the production design of, uh, Paul Rudd's room. Just like you said, this little reveal of what his room looks like with all the newspaper clippings and the, just the the recorder that plays the thing back and forth and everything. He looks like a detective that's obsessed. And it's, it's a feel that we haven't gotten yet in, uh, in the franchise because we've had the obsession from Loomis. But Loomis's obsession was not about solving anything, about figuring, figuring anything out. Loomis was just about ending Michael. And to finally this late in the franchise to see a character that is actively trying to figure out the mystery of Michael Myers which is it's a ballsy move because by now we're six movies in and there are a lot of people like you Alex we've discussed it where you you kind of like the fact that the the motivations behind Michael Myers uh, and his actions are just kind of uh, uh, impenetrable we're not supposed mm-hmm. to know. It's just, well, he's evil, and that's just it. And uh, here's a movie that's actively giving you a character that's trying to answer those questions. And the way that it's set up, they're setting you up for an answer. It's not the, the way that the movie structure. It's uh, 
you would feel cheated if you didn't come to any sort of revelation about what goes on in Michael Myers's mind or what's driving him. So uh, it's great. I think that's one reason it works is because they they give the character himself, they give Paul Rudd's character a very strong connection to to Michael Myers and his killings. So of course that that helps a lot. Yeah, and to me, the you talked about the set design and everything. Uh, something that blew my mind. I didn't even know this was feasible uh, in modern architecture, let alone 1990s. And that house would have been built in the 60s. He has he lives upstairs, and he has a full size refrigerator in his bedroom. <laughs> I I was not aware that that was feasible at that point in time. And for, did you notice he has a fucking magnet of divine on his refrigerator? Did you notice that? No. <laughs> I I was like, how fucking random, but. Tommy, in listening repeatedly to the tape, figures out he hears the final call for Haddonfield, the train uh, conductor or announcer or whatever the message is, despite the fact that there was no one there. (laughs) Uh, I did love, we skipped over when she gets there and there's no one at the train station. You know, typical people that take pride in their work, if they have to step aside, we'll have a sign up that says, be back in five. (laughs) Whoever was working at this train station was just like, fuck this, had a sign up that said, be back in 20. Like, I just uh, imagine waiting for 20 minutes to get a, a ticket for a train that's already left the station. But imagine being chased by a murderous maniac and you get there and it's like, what, 20 minutes? <laughs> Boy, I need those 20 minutes back. So, Paul Rudd, to, uh, Paul Stephen Rudd heads out. He goes to the train station and talk about i mean it makes sense that there would be a sign that says be back in 20 because whoever works there these people do not take pride in their work because there's this trail of blood leading through the entire uh station that hasn't been cleaned up and paul rudd just follows it pre-covid like, times. It reminded me, yeah there's a level in the first max Payne that was like this you had to like walk a tightrope on the string of blood and he goes down to where it leads into the bathroom there's uh like a bloody handprint on the sink again this, you, the bathroom has not been cleaned. The sign on the, like, uh, you know, the thing that the employees have to sign, the bathroom the was checklist. last cleaned at this time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah the, the date on it was 92. Like, that's the, the last time it was cleaned. But he does follow the blood down and finds, you know, the pretty baby boy there. I mean, with, as uh, if there wasn't enough proof that nobody has uh, even stepped into that bathroom. There is a baby <laughs> making noise in a, there. A living child with a thorn symbol drawn in blood on his chest so <laughs> paul rudd picks it up and just actually do you think that maybe the janitor on duty like walked in he's like fuck i don't want to clean blood and then they heard the baby and i'm like nope i'm not even going to initial this i'm gonna just pretend that i didn't even know there was an abandoned baby in here we need to see that character just kind of creaks open the, the little uh, cabinet there and sees it and just leaves for the day <laughs> he's like fuck this back in 20 <laughs> Back in 20, Paul Rudd picks up the baby. He kind of holds it like I hold a baby, kind of like, what do I do with this? He like holds it kind of like a cactus that he's holding horizontally. He's just like, uh, okay, here's this thing. And he takes it with him, though. He, But he knows this baby belongs to Jamie is the important thing. He's, he's pieced this all together in his head. So he takes it, and he's going to give it a safe home. Cut to, speaking of Jamie, we see her. Uh, she's still living. And so she's being taken off by medical personnel to the local hospital. Loomis is there on the scene and, oh, Jamie. (laughs) And Michael, I guess after he got so frustrated they didn't have the baby, they're in a barn somewhere with a bunch of hay that he just burned the thorn symbol into the side. I mean, 
it's impressive considering the way hay burns. You can't really <laughs> sear something into it unless you have a very specific brand. And I mean, his craftsmanship here, craftsmanship, excuse me, was something to behold. He got upgraded. Now he has a he has a calling card. Uh, in my notes, actually, I I, I got kind of carried away and I drew a thorn symbol in my notes. <laughs> That's how you know you're a true fan. I already made the uh, reference to the Marvel franchise a bit earlier, so why not keep it going? You know, you've got Iron Man fighting Captain America. I think a more uh, apropos comparison would be from an acting perspective, you know, the the embodiment of Thor hitting Captain America's shield with his hammer is when the Rudd met the Loomis. Yep. And in the next scene, we go to the hospital where Jamie's been transported to, where obviously Loomis is there to kind of keep an eye on her. And uh, Paul Rudd shows up, and I, this is my Oscar clip for Paul Rudd when he yells at the nurse. <laughs> he says, I need to see a doctor. And she's like, what's wrong? He's like, it's my baby. There's been an accident. And she says, what accident? Just get me a doctor. And then he makes like this face like he's going to start crying at her. It's absolutely wonderful. Give me a fucking uh, magic marker. <laughs> oh what a reference you made as uh tarantino will be discussed in the second portion really? of this podcast <laughs> yes but yeah this is this is something this is a movie that obviously it just gets better with time and uh, i was thinking about it just in the same way that when we we're talking about the original halloween yeah we, if you watch john carpenter's halloween when it first came out you liked it you didn't like it but the thing is you didn't know who jamie lee curtis was so you didn't have that extra enjoyment that normally anybody else in in present day would get out of just seeing a young jamie lee curtis likewise Mm -hmm. if you're watching halloween 6 for the first time back in the 90s you still get a kick out of seeing tommy doyle meet dr loomis and have an interaction and have them reminisce about the the original movie that's that's cool you know just by itself but then i mean there's no escaping it watching it in 2020 just to see paul rudd it just adds an extra charge to that scene uh because you're seeing him deliver in a way that well by now we're kind of used to that we we you could say that now we take paul rudd for granted and it's very refreshing to see that he was just as good all the way back then yeah, and it's, you know, these slasher movies are a breeding ground for some of the great talent that we come to know, and uh, this is no exception here. But, like I said, the main event here, he walks up, introduces himself to Dr. Sam Loomis. Uh, Loomis at first looks at him like he's kind of crazy. He's like, there's this disheveled young man holding a baby in front of me, and this baby has a symbol drawn in blood on its chest, and he he like stops him. He's like, I'm sorry, do I know you? <laughs> and he's like, I'm Tommy, Tommy Doyle. And Loomis's face here when he puts the pieces together, oh, it's it's magic. Yeah. They they had a magic night all the way back then. Yeah. And and now it's <laughs> It's like last tango in Paris. They're just back together again. <laughs> yeah. It was it was great. It's it's definitely one of my favorite moments in the movie. Uh it, it just does everything that you want it to do. Because what you want is for these two characters to be on the same page. And uh, and that's what happens. And also, really, it added to that feeling that uh, we're about to say goodbye to Loomis. Because now I can just 
you know, once this happened, I could just see it as a very clear passing of the torch story. I knew that there was a pretty good chance that this movie was going to end with Loomis sacrificing himself so that Paul Rudd could live and then Paul Rudd would be the one that would be just the hero of future, the new Loomis in future Halloween installments. I know that didn't happen, but... <laughs> <laughs> they exchange pleasantries. Uh, Tommy says, I know Michael's come home. I think we can defeat him together. Meet me at the the town gathering at 9 p.m. because... Paul Rudd, he's uh, he's basically fucking uh, walking around looking like taxi driver in there, and he's holding this baby, and so <laughs> they call security on him, so he has to go, and Loomis is just like, all right, I'll see you there. Loomis, knowing what he knows and that Michael's on the loose once again, he goes to the Strode residence, and he discusses, he, he just fucking breaks into their home <laughs> and uh, quarters Deborah and says, you know, he explains the whole situation. Uh, she has no idea the murders that had happened there and that, you know, uh, Michael's back and that Jamie's been killed uh, or at least stabbed at this point. And she's been warned. So she calls John and he just calls her an idiot pretty much and says, you've been watching too much damn TV. She says, I'm getting I'm getting my bags and I'm getting the fuck out of here. And so she packs up to go and then we get I don't know why if I ever went to a quote along of this movie it would be the scene I look most forward to when uh, John what's the Bradford English he reaches into his desk and pulls out his bottle of scotch or whatever he has and then he reaches in and pulls out like fucking uh, Kara what's the actress's name Marianne Hagen her fucking it, it looks like one of her uh, headshots yep. or you know one of her pictures to show her range it's this black and white photo he has framed of her under his desk he pulls it out he pours a glass of scotch takes a drink looks at the picture again and then he goes happy Halloween little girl and then he smashes back the, the rest of his drink it's uh, so w- uh, we could spend a whole episode unpacking this this scene because it i mean there's no follow-up to it but clearly it's it's meant to mean something right you don't just write this sort of uh interaction between a man and a picture of his daughter without intending for it to mean something to have some sort of uh, uh, resonance so you know i don't want to get too lurid in our reading of it but considering where this movie goes as far as uh relations between relatives do you think that this man had a thing for his daughter <laughs> jesus Dude, well, doesn't it look like it say, what the hell he has that's that's not uh, uh your standard human behavior uh if you're a father because here's the thing earlier when he's treating her like shit he's acting like a jealous boyfriend in you never really get a clear-cut explanation about what's up his ass why is he so I mean, we know he's a horrible person. He's horrible to everybody, but he seems to be particularly nasty to his daughter. And uh, it's like like he's taken uh, the fact that she had a baby with someone. He's taken that personally, like an offense directly to him. And so, so far, okay, you know, that's fine. Okay, so he's an asshole and he's like an overprotective father. But then you have this really weird scene where he's drinking and looking at a sexy photo of her and sounding almost wistful come on i i can't be listeners i can't be the only one who read this as having some sort of subtext uh that that has to do with the rest of the movie 
Uh, that is a fascinating read on the John Kara relationship, and I was about to, you know, castigate you for that and say, "What you're you are out of your mind." But then I remember we're about two scenes away from an uncle raping his niece, yep. so yep. you know it's exactly. uh, <laughs> it's not uh, out of the realm of possibility that director Joe Chappelle and uh, writer Daniel uh, Ferens were trying to go for. I, yeah, if you've seen this movie and. Julio might be onto something. I'm I'm never going to watch this movie the same way again. So thank you for that. <laughs> Just when you think that uh, John Strode couldn't be any worse, any more creepy. Unfortunately, this leads to Deborah's exit. As when she tries to leave the house, Michael's already in there. She gets a phone call uh, that says, "We want the kid," and it's the ominous man in black calling. And I actually really, really, really love this shot here. There's a couple shots of her walking through the home, and we see Michael in the background, but it's not. He's completely out of focus, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I think what this does is it's a really good job of capitalizing on the fact that you have had four movies with Michael before to know what his presence is like, and that he doesn't need to be in full focus or the like the the central part of the shot for it to work. But yeah, Deborah tries to get away. Sadly, not in the cards for you, sweetheart. She's axed in the head um, in a, a shot that. I'm sure had been done before, but I always think of this movie when I see it and a shot that was almost exactly copied in the 2003 Texas Chainsaw Massacre remake (sighs) of the sheets hanging and then the impact. And then you see one sheet getting splattered with blood in the background. Mm -hmm. Like I said, I'm not saying this movie necessarily invented that shot, but it's what I think of. And therefore I think that uh, Marcus Nispel aped it for his movie. So Deborah's gone for uh, Paul Rudd is wandering around with his baby still. He doesn't he, he finds Danny. I there are long stretches of this movie that I forget the Danny character exists. <laughs> but he befriends Paul Rudd and so they are just kind of hanging out together. He's kind of like, "Hey, I have this baby. Want to hang out?" <laughs> if any character was going to go for that, it would be the Danny character, which, you know, perfect casting because this kid's supposed to be kind of uh, half the movie. He's supposed to be somewhat in trance hearing voices. Mm-hmm. And they got an actor that just basically projects that this kid is just there's a lot of crazy in shit in his own world. <laughs> yeah. But there's a lot of crazy shit happening around him and he just seems unfazed. Uh, except for just a couple moments where he kind of wakes up. But that's uh, I can tell that 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 was the intention. So we go back to Haddonfield General, and Jamie is recuperating in her hospital bed, and we get a series of flashbacks to uh, her being apprehended and taken in with uh, this cult again to wherever this bunker is, and I think we decided it was either Rosemont or Elgin, (laughs) Illinois, and we see she's part of a ritualistic ceremony, I guess, and... It is implied that Michael, her uncle, rapes her, impregnates her, and then she gives birth to this unholy child. The idea being that it would be a sacrifice for Michael to make to this cult. But And yet, it's not spelled out to where we know for sure that's what happened. I mean, it is for sure what happened, because then later a character basically confirms it. But uh just going back to the movie, kind of hinting at the awfulness of it all without really telling you, just letting you figure out. You know, it doesn't it's, it doesn't really show you the shark. It just yeah. hints at the shark. Uh, it's the same thing. All we see is Jamie being tied up. And we, we know by now, we know that this scenario is going to end on her 
more than likely will end uh, with her being pregnant and having that baby. And so mm-hmm. we know that she was probably more than likely she was abused. Uh, and we just don't know the exact circumstances. We don't know if it was, you know, the leader of the group, if it was the whole group, if it was, you know, and we're like, it could have been Michael. We kind of don't want to think th- that way because we know they're related. But at this point, it's just what lines wouldn't this franchise cross? Uh and and so the last thing you see is Michael kind of like approaching, but we don't know for sure, which I think is what makes it more effective. The movie still is not letting us off the hook with a with a clear and concrete answer. It's still gonna let us wonder what the hell happened for another twenty minutes or so, which makes it worse than if they just told us. Yeah. And again, as we have explicitly seen and can categorically confirm there have been other directors of this franchise that would not be so gentle about this and restrained so <laughs> restrained yeah and leave things up to implications they would spell it out for you directly and it does it's a really 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 uh, fucked up scenario and off-putting is a very mild word or term for it but it's done in a way that as a viewer you're not left feeling dirty afterwards yeah, uh, I mean, poor Jamie though. Just she, she has it rough in this franchise. You know, I don't think even Newt in Aliens gets as as rough a treatment as as Jamie does over the three movies that she's in. <laughs> and unfortunately, that it's the end of the road for Jamie. Uh, she made it a lot longer in the producer's cut than she did in the theatrical one. But uh, we come back from her, I guess, a dream sequence, and there is a silenced pistol pointed to her head. And, you hear the man in black say your work is done or something to the effect you're no longer needed, something like that, and shoots her in the head, sadly. That, of course, lends itself to Loomis the next day coming in, and he obviously has felt that he's failed Jamie, which he has because <laughs> she's dead. But the doctor uh, spells out, hey, when we did you know, uh, surgery on her, which also when they show the clips of them doing surgery, it, like they pull the knife out of her while she's on the operating table. Like you think that would have been done at the crime scene or something? It looks like it, it also. It looks like they opened her up and then they pulled the knife from inside. Like the knife the was whole pulled knife the was way in, there. <laughs> in her stomach. This doesn't belong here. But they they're like, hey, you know, her uterus was hemorrhaging, and you know there was placenta still on there, and Loomis. He's putting it all together now. He's like, oh, now I understand why that strange young man was carrying around that baby, <laughs> and uh, this doctor. So, this doctor wins the, I guess I don't know the most like the ridiculous award in the movie because he he says you know that her her uterus was hemorrhaging and then and we found this and he shows him like a vial and uh, and they'll look like how are they supposed to know what that is <laughs> and then he's like. It's a placenta, <laughs> or it's placenta fluid. That is true. He just kind of pulls it out like it's a fucking Snickers bar that he's showing <laughs> off. He's we found this, uh, and then of course, conspicuously, Doctor Terrence Wynn, Mitchell Ryan's like, "Well, where's the goddamn baby?" And Loomis, of course, "Well, I may know." <laughs> and then we get like this whole history lesson from Paul Rudd. It's not even exposition because you still think his character is insane. It's just like. You know, a conspiracy theory. It's like um, Data in Independence Day, just spouting his insane rhetoric about what he believes is going on, which what Paul Rudd believes is that somehow tied to Samhain and pagan rituals and history, 
Michael is this tool being used by a cult known as the Thorn that essentially they choose like a a vehicle or a bloodline to travel through and you have to every once in a while offer a sacrifice of the same bloodline. Uh, it's it's a little convoluted, I might say. But, uh, but at this point, I mean, it's just the only explanation that you could buy. Yeah, absolutely. And the, the important thing is Tommy thinks he's figured out a way to stop him using ancient stones known as the runes uh, that basically are able to counteract the negative energy omitted by uh, this cursed individual. But the idea is if he doesn't kill the baby, if he doesn't sacrifice uh, you know, his son-nephew, then it's... Um, the curse is going to be passed on to someone else. Now, this is also tied in with a constellation, the constellation of Thorn, which is on mm-hmm. the. It has the same image as the tattoos that Michael has and that some of the other people have. It's it's a whopper of an explanation. It's uh, it, it's what we at this point, like I said, just what else could you do? It's 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 what we deserved. Uh, you can only keep the mystery going for so long. Just like you could only keep Loomis getting crazier and crazier for so long. At some point, six movies in, you just you just need to bite the bullet and give us an explanation. And I appreciate that this movie, in yet another attempt at just breaking free from the the expectations, the normal expectations you would have from the franchise, it just goes balls out crazy. And it's talking about constellations and stars and magic and runes and rituals and cults and it's just uh, it just thank you because this is how you pay off the cliffhanger and the the hints that they put throughout part five right if at this point Mm -hmm. they had come up with a very mundane explanation as to why michael myers is the way he is or they had just kind of backpedaled and not given us any explanation at all i would have felt cheated this is just the only logical conclusion uh and they a hundred percent commit to it. So, so I liked it. I was, I was a big fan. Yeah. It's definitely, there's, there's no way to not respect this of just like, we've gotten this far. And then the explanation is that really it's this insanely convoluted thing, you know, evil at birth is not real. (laughs) There's this, there's this cult that's going to infiltrate your mind and use you as this destructive vehicle. Uh, I keep using the term vehicle, but I'm trying to think of like a, it's an entity, and you know, eventually we find out the cult belie- or the the thorn believes they're like the guardian angel of of Michael, and he's been used to fulfill their needs. It's it's something else. So back in the real world, uh, back in Haddonfield, Barry. I, every time I wrote his name down in my notes, I just I did it all caps, like uh, that wrestler Walter. I really like. I don't know why, but like every time they showed his name, it was in all caps. So uh, Barry shows up. It, it's again, it's a fucking. Dollar Tree Howard Stern character, <laughs> and he's really sexist and says, you know, silly, immature things. He finds out that the Myers house is uh, one of the people there, the brother Tim, and he finds out that he lives in the Myers house. So he's going to move the show there so they can emanate from the home. But based on the amount of people there and the size of the house, I, I didn't think it was going to be a, a good fit. But fortunately, <laughs> we never find out. <laughs> yeah, because he gets in his car and he's. I think he's berating his assistant or something on the phone. And for the star that he thinks he is, he fucking drives himself in a shitty van everywhere. I mean, <laughs> well, check the ego at the door, man. His van is so shitty, actually, that he he gets in the wrong van. He he gets in the wrong shitty van because uh, we see the camera pan after he gets in the car. 
the camera kind of pans to the side, and then you see that he got into the oh, this uh, Smith's Grove. Yeah, he gets the Smith's Grove van. Yes, that's right. And that's right. It's great because uh, it also means you know that Michael shows up and kills him from inside the van, and so Michael was just hanging out this, uh, inside the Smith's Grove van. <laughs> just, he felt a little nostalgic. Yeah, he, I guess he thought eventually someone was going to take him home. Uh, <laughs> it was like this is this was the agreed upon. Uh, Location. It was like if you get separated from the group, just find this Mitzgro van. <laughs> just wait for us there. So he kills Barry. He hangs him up in a tree using Halloween lights, and in an extremely metal moment, some little girl's dancing in the blood that's falling down from it, and singing a song to herself about how it's raining red. Paul Rudd discovers it and looks up, and this body falls down, and it's obviously chaos at this point. Loomis goes and gets Paul Rudd. They return back to Tommy Doyle's home thinking the baby's going to be there. All the while, while this is happening, the situation with Barry, back at the Strode residence, Kara and her son Danny and the baby have been stationed out in fucking Tommy's bunker. But across the street, Tim and his girlfriend Beth, I mean, it's a horror movie after all, so we got to have some coitus in it. Uh, They engage and become the beast with two backs. Uh, He takes a shower and is killed. He's got his throat slit by Michael. She calls over to the house. Beth answers, Kara being she. And explains, you got to get the fuck out of there. And unfortunately, because she doesn't question at all the fact that Tommy has a camera pointed at their house. (laughs) And specifically aimed into the bedrooms. But sadly, she has to watch Beth's untimely demise happen right in front of her eyes. I mean, talk about more uh, expectation defiance here. Just going against what you would expect. Because yes, that's true. It's a slasher movie. It's a Halloween movie. You want some sex. But you don't really see anything in this one. And like I mentioned earlier... Uh, you barely see uh, breasts. You know, they're they're most of the mm-hmm. time they're tastefully covered by the flames from the from the candles, and uh, what you see is really the post sex. And the same thing, you would expect some sort of romance to develop between uh, Kara and and Tommy, but that doesn't happen. The movie never gives you time for that. It's just it has more important things to worry about. Because that would have been a very uh, simple explanation, right? Oh, well, she's not concerned about the camera because by now she's learned that, that Paul Rudd is, is an okay guy. But instead, I think that what what's happening is that she's just so overwhelmed by all the craziness that really the camera doesn't register as something she can worry about right now. And she, being Marian Hagen, Kara, her son Danny, strolls back to the house, the, the Strode house. He wanders off and she goes to follow him. She gets over there, obviously engages in a tangle with Michael. They are able to free themselves and get away. They go back over to the Doyle residence. And at this point, this is kind of where everything goes haywire because Loomis and Tommy show back up and they're all panicking like, Michael's coming. Where's the baby? And then the entire fucking thorn cult invades the house and kind of takes them all captive. We find out that uh, Mrs. Blankenship's part of it. Danny goes and he sits on the lap of the man in black who is revealed as Dr. Terrence Wynn, the curator of fucking Smith's Grove. Loomis just, he kind of has the cocky smile on his face like, of course. (laughs) And uh, Kara runs upstairs to try to find the baby and she is just fucking ambushed by members of the thorn. She's so... Uh, frazzled by this and just overwrought with emotion that she just decides to jump out of the window that you know they'd say don't introduce a gun in the first act if you're not going to use it in the third well don't introduce a full 
size window in the first act if someone's not going to jump out of it. I mean, that's a full body size window that she just fucking runs and spears herself through. She had, uh, she had seen the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and she was like, that's that's an appropriate move when you're being chased by lunatics. That's I'm so proud of you. That's if this if this podcast has done nothing else, it's given you horror movies to reference. And I didn't even know if you were going to go there, so I was just going to skip it. But thank you very much for that. Uh, before before we uh, we go further into exploring the ramifications of the major twists uh, that this third act turned into the third act uh, throws at the audience, and that I loved, we need to mention that one of the highlights of the movie, one of the high points uh, for me, which is when. Uh, fucking uh john strode finally meets his maker and it's not that what i would call a spectacular kill you know we've seen people die in more imaginative ways and we've certainly seen them suffer more but it was still very satisfying to see that uh the movie didn't forget about him uh he walked into his house drunk he just kind of wanders around he has the great line well son of a bitch she actually left (laughs) he he didn't see it coming he could not be he he shows up back home. He runs over like a, a lamp in their front yard, and he looks like fucking Norm on Cheers. <laughs> like part of his shirt's untucked, and yeah, he, thanks for dinner. And yeah, he. Uh, I know I skipped over that. My note just says Michael wreaks havoc on the Strodes, and yeah, he definitely uh, John Strode gets it here. But out of all the Halloween movies we've watched so far, this might even be more satisfying than Tina getting killed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because he's just so hateable. He was such a piece of shit, and uh, not to jump ahead to the to the brief talk we'll have, I guess, about the the director's cut and everything. But uh, I was glad that you sent me that video, and I was able to see at least a much gorier version of his death <laughs> in that you know in that cut. So that that was good. Yeah, it's literally the fucking uh, when Michael actually makes the threat level midnight movie on the office <laughs> that like he puts all the budget towards the scene where Toby's head explodes. That's literally like what this is. The Weinstein's are just like. They had those guns that shoot money out, and they were just like, more, more. <laughs> but what if his head explodes? It doesn't make sense. It doesn't matter. They, I just fucking Bob Weinstein just shoving Alka-Seltzer in the dude's mouth. More foam. <laughs> more. It makes emotional sense. Jesus. Yeah. It, it, John Strode shows up just being a miserable drunk and goes out being one as he's impaled with a machete. This is definitely the most MacGyvery Michael that we've had so far. He keeps it pretty standard in all the other movies, but with these, he's he's going all across the board here. Uh, do you remember, Alex, the first time you watched this movie? Was it was it just like all the pieces clicking together when you saw that the, the head of uh, Smith's Grove was the man in black? So, no, because, again... They don't specifically explain that he's the head of Smith's Grove. That's some research you kind of have to do on your own. Well, in the theatrical version, it's not specifically right. called out. Yeah, the first time I saw this movie was the theatrical version. I watched it on Halloween nights in high school, and I was it was me and a few other friends, and the girl I was like with was so much hotter than me that I was barely paying attention to the movie. And but even then, I remember watching it and thinking. This makes no fucking sense. <laughs> so since that's the only time I've seen it. And since then, I've only seen the theatrical version. But especially here tonight, after seeing this movie, uh, the producer's cut, I'm sorry, three times maybe mm-hmm. before this. Yeah, it's definitely, it's easy to kind of piece it together because then I was actually taking notes for it and kind of trying to observe the story instead of just laughing at how silly it all is. And the, because we fade to black after she jumps out of the window. So her jumping out of the window doesn't even save her. She's still captured. And then when, when she regains consciousness, she's on, you know, this 
sacrificial slab of rock. And isn't it so weird and it cr- genuinely like adds to the creepiness that fucking Michael's just standing yep. there? <laughs> it is unsettling in a way that I know I keep coming back to this and it, I guess it's proof that it really made an impression on me. But uh, it's the opposite feeling of seeing him drive a car. When you see Michael Myers drive a car, it's it's silly and it makes you laugh. When you see Michael Myers just standing calmly uh, as as an acolyte next to all these weirdos in the cult, it is unsettling because it's he's still creepy. You know, he's still the guy wearing a mask. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, I don't know. It, it and I think part of it also has to do that with the setting because I don't know about you, but. This was my first time watching the movie. So, of course, when you see Kara tied down the same way that Jamie was tied down in those flashbacks, then, of course, once again, your mind goes to the worst possible scenario. And I was like, oh, my God, are we actually going to see her? Is she going to go through a ritual similar to what Jamie did? Are they going to try to impregnate her? Uh, it was just uh, just very distressing, very disturbing. Uh, I was glad that Paul Rudd was there to save the day. Yeah, and, and save the day he does. And, man, they really got the, the bang for their buck with him here, Dimension Films, because we get the whole gamut, the whole rigmarole, you know, the whole filmography, whatever you want to say, of all of Paul Rudd rolled into one, because then he shows up wearing this ridiculous outfit that he stole from one of the Thorn members. And he looks like uh, he's doing, like, a, a stage play or something and comes in and holds a knife to uh, Dr. Wynn's throat and essentially breaks up the ceremony because it's already kind of starting to fall apart because Michael's got to fulfill his final sacrifice. Uh, Kara is like, Michael, you don't have to do it, and tells him, you know, the baby's yours. (laughs) And George P. Wilbur, who played uh, Michael... You know, we can't even see his eyes, and we're already, he's doing like a head tilt like a dog that you said, are you hungry? Uh, because its he's trying to piece it all together. Me have baby? And so while this is all falling apart, that's when Paul Rudd and his magic regalia, he looks like, a, um, like if you were playing a human game of chess, he's wearing the outfit that the king would wear. And he comes in and puts a knife to Wynn's throat. And, you know, basically, we're going to get the fuck out of here. But the way Wynn uh, is also... I mean, everybody is is wearing this sort of cultish uh, costume. Oh, yeah. It's th- this movie. You, If you, at this point you had any questions of how far they were going to lean into it, it's going all the way. It's great. Once again, production design A-plus on Halloween 6, uh, Curse of Michael Myers. Uh, but also, just in the middle of this chaos, this is part of the brilliance of the movie. They finally did it. They, they did it with that line and that reaction from Michael. They confirmed our worst fears. Uh, the baby was Michael's. So Michael is the one who abused Jamie when she was you know trapped and being part of the, the ritual. But they do it in such a way, you know, the movie is like, okay, confirmed, and now move on to the rest of the third act because there's a lot of chasing and killing to to do here so it's like you're horrified but at the same time you just you don't have time to really dwell on it which i think it's it's important because we're in the final stretch of the movie Mm -hmm. and michael doesn't have much time to think because he's got to react now and he goes to hunt down um kara tommy and danny of course and at this point loomis is back in the fray as well so we just get a pretty typical chase scene that goes on until finally Paul Rudd, Tommy Doyle helps. He does the noble thing. He helps Kara, Danny, and Loomis escape. And he stays behind because he spent his life devote to figuring out this monster. <laughs> and he's going to see one way or another if, you know, what he believes, if it's really going to 
slay this beast. And son of a bitch, it does. He lays down these these uh, you know these ancient stones, the the runes. Uh, he slices his hand open to make a, a blood sacrifice in front of it. Michael comes up and grabs him by the throat, and he just drops the. He says Sam Hain, which again, not pronouncing it correctly, but <laughs> here nor there. And Michael drops him and then just freezes in his spot. Paul Rudd backs away, and God bless him, he takes a minute to celebrate his victory. He eyes him up and down and kind of smiles like, you're not so bad after all. <laughs> uh, I thought it was great that Loomis just took off with the with Kara and the baby because that's that's the right call, right? Uh, I, I think that a more stereotypical uh, scenario would be Loomis arguing with Paul Rudd and saying, no, I'm the one who has to do this because I'm the one that has the history and I'm the one that's been trying to kill him all these years and I'm the one that's older. You have your whole life ahead of you, kid, and whatever. And then Paul Rudd takes off and Loomis faces off against Michael and they both die uh, together. Uh, but that doesn't make any sense because, as you just said, Paul Rudd has actually been trying to figure this out. He's been studying how to defeat Michael. That's not something that Loomis was doing. Loomis was just kind of going at him as a wrecking ball, just <laughs> tossing everything he could at him. But Paul Rudd has put in the, the homework. And uh, and then the best part is that he doesn't die. It actually works out because it could have worked, but also killed Paul Rudd. Like that's usually the kind of... Uh, mm conclusion that you get in this sort of thing right somebody must die and uh, Paul Rudd we've grown to like him over the movie how could we not he's Paul Rudd and so I I honestly thought that he was gonna he wasn't gonna make it out of this building I thought that this was his final confrontation with Michael and that was it Paul Rudd then leaves takes his costume off he meets Loomis and Kara and Danny outside and Loomis is like what happened (laughs) and Paul Rudd in easily the most quotable line of this movie specifically the producer's cut he said the power of the runes stopped him (laughs) And then it's kind of like awkward silence. And then, all right, <laughs> let's go. And then Superman by Goldfinger plays as they drive off into the distance. <laughs> then Loomis, though, his job's not done. He has to make sure Michael is, you know, is a done deal, a done data, as Kimbo Slice would say. And he goes inside and he goes to he sees Michael supine on the, the cold tiled floor. He takes the mask off of him and it's Mitchell Ryan because we did see Mitchell Ryan walk up to Michael standing there basically just accosting him for how weak he is. <laughs> and uh, the curse has been passed to Mitchell Ryan and then in that moment he passes it to Loomis and we see the, the mark of the thorn appear on Donald Pleasant's wrist and he has a meltdown. Epic meltdown. This was on par oh, with no. uh, Tom Atkins at the end of the season of The Witch. That just that whole I'm gonna scream at the camera and this is the last you're gonna see of me. That was amazing, uh, and it was also far more disturbing than what I expected because, like I said, I went into this movie, uh, especially once I saw the depiction of Loomis. I I assumed this was it. This was gonna be the end, and so I expected him to just simply die, sacrifice himself in the the fight against Michael Myers. I did not expect him to basically just be trapped into becoming what he was fighting. Uh, And it's a damn shame that basically the franchise didn't go further down this road because obviously, well, I guess they couldn't have done anything else because Donald Pleasance passed. But can you imagine uh, Halloween 7, that is Donald Pleasance as leader of the Thorn, uh, working alongside Michael to try to kill Paul Rudd and uh, uh, the other survivors? Just Evil Pleasance was the only place that the franchise hadn't gone yet. And that would have been awesome. 
And then we get a shot of Michael making his exit out, presumably into the real world, to be a free man for the first time in his life <laughs> as he's decked out in the man in black costume. Uh, but we, we confirm it's Michael by showing the you know the classic, almost like combat work boots that he wears. And then we kind of get a, um, a, a small homage to the original where we just get a few static shots of different parts of the building. We get that shot of Loomis again. No! And then... Uh, <laughs> To me, I thought the last shot was fucking awesome because, uh, you know, the first thing we see in Halloween is uh, the, the jack-o'-lantern. And so this was the jack-o'-lantern that the final breeze was coming in to blow it out. And that's how the movie ends. And then sadly, of course, we're hit with in loving memory of Donald Pleasance. So what a roller coaster of emotions the last 10 minutes of this movie are. Yeah. Revelation after revelation, twist after twist. You think that you're heading towards a happy ending, and then it, it is not at all. Uh, I will confess, I did not read that final shot of Michael like you did, even though it makes perfect sense. I thought that that would just meant that he was free of the cult, not that he was just back to normal. Um, but it makes sense now because, yeah, he's not wearing his mask. He left the mask with, uh, with Dr. Wynn. So you think that he's just... On his way to like going, get a job somewhere, <laughs> settle in, just live this life, yeah, get an accounting job somewhere, yeah. uh, get a job at an enterprise rent a car, <laughs> and just get an apartment in Haddonfield. Although he'd probably move to the coast just to get away from it all. But yeah, I just I read it as him just saying, "I'm here now, world. This is me." It's like uh, you know the, the an evil curse had been lifted. He even has the hat when you, know, you see the profile. He's wearing the fedora. <laughs> Fucking Paul Rudd should have hit him with, uh, Genie, you're free. <laughs> <laughs> so, so concludes the most tumultuous entry, as uh, I believe you used that word a bit earlier, Julio, and it is accurate to describe Halloween 666, The Curse of Michael Myers. Uh, and if you thought that was convoluted, just wait till the second half where we talk about what went into actually making this movie. <laughs> Uh, Julio, are you ready to move this along to Real Talk? Uh, yes, I am. Well, that killer in the mask, Michael Myers, is wreaking mayhem again as he's chased by his arch nemesis in the latest Halloween horror movie. But this installment marks a sad milestone because in real life, it proved to be the last hurrah for a true legend of the silver screen. It's a very exciting story. It will give you shivers up your spine. Will terrify the life out of you. Since the first Halloween and three of its sequels, the late Donald Pleasance doggedly pursued the inventive, resilient, and thoroughly evil Michael Myers. Though the filmmakers didn't know it at the time, the sixth installment sadly marks the final heroics of Donald's intrepid character, Dr. Loomis. Dr. Loomis, the, uh, the bogey chaser, the man who has pursued Michael Myers through five films and shot him at least ten times with no success. I've come back to get him once again. What makes you think he'll come back here? This house is sacred to him. He has all his memories here. His rage! This time around, Pleasant teams up with Marianne Hagen, who was elated to be paired with the veteran actor. When I found out that I was doing this with Donald Pleasance, I was so blown away because he is a legend. There's no other word for him. And immediately felt, you know, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy to wash your costume socks, let alone to act with 
with you. But for Hagen and her co-stars, being chased or butchered by Myers wasn't as frightening as it's cracked up to be. That was a blast, actually. I had to act all, all scared and everything, but uh, inside I was giggling. Look out, there's someone in the room. He's right behind you. You're scared, I can tell. You know, the people that are making the real killing on these movies are the producers. There have been yeah. six of these movies. Combined, they've cost less than 20 million. They have oh, earned 200 million. Oh, man. <laughs> Halloween, the curse of Michael Myers is in theaters now. Okay, well, from the horror... Hello, Haddonfield! Before we move this baby along to Real Talk, friend of the podcast and multiple-time guest Reed Lansford wanted to weigh in his thoughts on Halloween 6, The Curse of Michael Myers. Being a Halloween historian and overall horror movie connoisseur, Reed surely has opinions on this enigmatic entry in the Halloween franchise. Be sure to follow Reed on Twitter at ICantReadATX, I-C-A-N-T-R-E-I-D-A-T-X. And seeing as how Reed works as the programmer for the Other Worlds Film Festival based out of Austin, Texas, go ahead and give them a follow as well at OtherWorldsATX. Swing on over to their website, OtherWorldsFilmFest.com, for all their latest up-to-date news. So let's not let the power of the runes slow us down. Let's get to Reed's take on Halloween 6. Then following, we'll get back to the contrarians for some real talk. Halloween, the curse of Michael Myers. Or Halloween, the origin of Michael Myers, or Halloween 666, uh, could fall under any of those titles depending on what trailer you saw in the year leading up to the release. Um, by this point, you guys have probably talked about the uh, very interesting and troubled production of the movie, and ultimately that story is much more interesting than most of what ended up on screen in any version that you saw. And that behind the scenes part to me is just interesting because there's so many movies that are literally thousands, if not more movies that are so much better made, but none of them have just the behind the scenes legend that this has. I mean, just the mess of the production and the different versions. Um, most movies don't make this interesting of a backstory, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Is this a good movie? No. Is this a good Halloween movie? No. But I still kind of love it. I don't know why. I can't really justify it in any way. I did have to look because the first time that I saw this, I can actually pinpoint the exact date that I saw this movie. Um, I had to look it up and do a little back research, but it was October 24th, 1998. That was a Saturday, and I looked this up because I remember seeing this on TV when I was a kid, and I think, I have no idea what order I saw the original Halloween movies in, um, but I remember seeing the first two on TV all the time, and then I saw this one, so I, I probably saw this after I saw the first two, but I don't know. But I looked it up, and Halloween 6 aired on my local WB affiliate, on that day and that was the first time I saw it and what's interesting is the TV version is actually a mishmash of the theatrical cut and the producer's cut that is its own unique cut because it takes scenes from both and puts them in and out of order to basically take out all the stuff they have to cut out for TV to fill into a two-hour running slot um, and I would love to see that version again because I don't think that particular version a version that's the TV cut has ever come out or even shown up on YouTube. So yeah, I would really like to see that again and remember the simpler times of 
Saturday, October 24th, 1998. I think really the fatal mistake of this, and I don't necessarily blame the filmmakers, is that Paul Rudd is such a naturally charismatic actor um, who I think gets a lot of deserved goodwill from the fact that he has a lot of charm and natural good humor that comes through in everything that he does. And the director just basically said, okay, don't do any of that. Um, and it doesn't really work. You can't really blame Paul Rudd. He's not good in this movie, but this was also, I think, his first movie or one of his first. He, I think he shot this before Clueless, but Clueless came out first. Um, he's not really given much to work with here, so you can't really blame him. And I do love, though, for Paul, is that he goes for it in this movie. He is definitely making some choices with his performance and really giving a lot more than uh, the script kind of deserves. So good on Paul for that. I'm recording for Real Talk for Halloween 666, The Curse of Michael Myers. Terror never rests in peace. <laughs> the original tagline was, there are no clean getaways, but they had to save that for No Country for Old Men and then for Drive. Halloween 6. Six six, the curse of Michael Myers, again released September 29th of nineteen ninety five, after heavily being delayed repeatedly. Budget of five million dollars for a box office return of fifteen million. So, obviously not bad, but not good either. Had the lowest, yeah, it was the lowest grossing entry in the series. And that still holds up even today by inflation. My first memory of this movie is it is on the Miramax VHS for Pulp Fiction, the original Pulp Fiction VHS. They play the uh, trailer for this. Um, again, it was called Halloween 666 because it was uh, a dimension film, which was a division of Miramax at that point in time. And we will get a little bit further into it here. But in a nutshell, Mustafa Akkad... Uh, the ownership that he had, his production company had over the Halloween franchise lapsed in 1990. And so when he actually went to, you know, go back to the well of opportunity, it was up for uh, bid and it went into heavy bidding war with John Carpenter's people. Uh, oh. And that's, yeah, that's when Akkad partnered with uh, the Weinsteins, Bob and Harvey. <laughs> Literally While, made a deal with the devil. Exactly. While uh, Carpenter was with New Line, trying to get the rights to it. Allegedly, Carpenter's pitch for Halloween 6 was that it was going to involve shooting Michael Myers into space, uh, <laughs> which it, it may or may not have been a joke. Uh, Mustafa Kod insisted that Carpenter was not joking with this pitch, which it was reported as a fact uh, on the Halloween movies website. Uh, both parties submitted sealed bids to win back the franchise, but obviously Akkad and Miramax later won. Uh, the, the main significance of this is that while Mustafa Akkad does have his name on it, just like he did every other one up until this point, uh, he basically, with specifically 4 and 5, had like carte blanche. It was like the movie Casino, the, the Scorsese classic with uh, the Neon Pesci, who, uh, you know, they didn't know how good they had it when they were in Vegas, and then they threw it all away. I think that's that's what they did. He made that number four, a, then he pissed it all away with number five. That was an allegory for uh, Mustafa Akkad's relationship here. But what that led to here, and you know, we use the word tumultuous several times in the first portion of what that eventually became was Mustafa Akkad and you know his people 
in the the fray, which was specifically the screenwriter of this film, uh, Daniel Farens Farens, who was just basically like a, a hyper Halloween fan <laughs> and had come up with like this whole idea for the mythology behind it. And so that was that camp. And then there was the Weinsteins that just wanted a gorier movie and also featuring less Donald Pleasance. So there was that pissing fight back and forth. And then the test screening they did of it was basically just like a group of 14-year-old boys. So, of course, they're going to poo-poo anything they don't understand. So, naturally, the Weinsteins got their way in the end and released a massive, massive hunk of shit in the theaters. And then years later, we would eventually get a a release of the producer's cut. I remember going to a Halloween screening of... It was a double feature of Halloween 4 and 5 at the Cinemark in Plano, Texas, which would have been a maybe like a 45-minute drive from Denton where I was working at the theater at the time. Um, I have the poster still from it because we aver- it was a Fathom event, so we advertised it at our theater, but we weren't actually showing it. But I still have the poster for it, and I remember driving to the theater to watch it, and there was uh, a guy in the theater selling VHS bootlegs of the producer's cut, and he was walking around just like, I got the producer's cut here. <laughs> and I kind of vaguely knew what that was at that point, that would have been 07, 08. And then doing a little bit more research on it. So essentially what like the bootleg DVDs and VHSs of it were were like shitty, shitty for footage of the producer's cut that got released just spliced in with the stuff from the theatrical that was in there too. So it, it looked like shit. I remember I think the first time I watched it was on YouTube. And uh, Oh, so you didn't buy what? the bootleg? No, 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 no. I didn't trust uh I, I didn't trust bootleggers of the horror variety. If it was wrestling, that would have been a different story. But uh, I also shockingly, as I mentioned earlier, the tale of my life, my romantic life is typically me dating girls that are much hotter than me. And the girl I was dating at the time was uh much hotter than me and had already agreed to be there, so I didn't want to look like a total fucking geek and buy a bootleg VHS right in front of her. You could have voted you could have bought it for her. And then that's that's how you you make it work. Sealed the deal. (laughs) It was something that was kind of of legend for many years. And then in 2014, got an official release on Blu-ray. I guess um, there was a, a market for it. And because at that point in time, they'd already figured out how cheap these things are to produce. I don't think there was any type of like legal battle with it, with who owned it and who didn't, but the whole reason it was never released in a, an official capacity was pretty much just because it seemed like there wasn't much of a demand for it because the theatrical version was so bad and tanked so bad. It satisfied all the needs. Yeah. Again, there are people that really think there's some artistic merit to the producer's cut, which we will speak to. Some people hold it in pretty high regard. I, I think it's... I think interesting is the best way to describe it. But Julio, you know, speaking just to the overall Halloween Curse of Michael Myers, Halloween 666, it is 9% on Rotten Tomatoes. So that means despite uh, their best efforts, there were some people that enjoyed it. Uh, Yeah, yeah. The theatrical. (laughs) Lee McCoy from Drum Dums says, Curse is definitely the most controversial with its cultish plotline. Sometimes chaos creates beauty. And I find a lot in Six. Do you find any beauty see, in six? <laughs> dude, see, like that makes no sense. I, I would almost accept that. I, I would accept that review for the producer's cut. <laughs> David Nusser from Real Film Reviews says, much malign, yet quite underrated. At 9% in the tomato meter, I mean, maybe. And then 
caffeinated Clint from Movie Hole says, A return to form for the franchise scares a plenty. A return to form. Oh, boy. I mean, after five listeners, if you've been with us for a while, you know, we did a, a commentary for five. And that was pretty bad. If I hadn't been watching part five with you and Reed and kind of just, you know, obviously talking about it mm -hmm. as it was happening, I probably would have had a much worse time. I watched Halloween six by myself <laughs> and and it, it, it was OK. So I think that it, it, using those two things to judge it, you know, I would say just that alone makes number six better than five. But I don't know. It, it's also been a while since I watched five. Producer's Cut was only available via bootleg that had video and audio so poor it was nearly unwatchable. The the footage managed to survive being destroyed is what I was trying to read there, which is it was the 90s, so we weren't just dumping film in the incinerator anymore. <laughs> it was um, so Shout Factory, which restores a lot of horror movies. They got the original negative for it and restored it for uh, the complete collection that came out in 2014. And then it was 2015 when Miramax themselves released a single release of it, which is what I own, which I got for, it's one of those that just is on the shelf at Walmart for five bucks. And I didn't even know it was released. So you can imagine me like freaking out in the middle of Walmart. Like what? <laughs> Does it say producer's cut like in big letters? Yeah. Oh yeah. There, there's no way that you can confuse it. It says it on the front, on the spine, on the back, on the disc. <laughs> they make sure you know. Does he have a sticker that says 30% more Donald Pleasants? <laughs> it's, uh, it says like 70 additional minutes, and it's like the movie's 90 minutes, I guess. <laughs> Paul Rudd, parentheses, this is 40 or something. I was reading it before we started recording. <laughs> Did you find your review for Halloween 5? Uh, yes, I gave it one star. <laughs> oh, man. See, I love 4. I, and I know I've mentioned that already. Uh, during Haddonfield Nights and just on the podcast in general, I think that is one of the best, you know, the Mount Rushmore of slashers. You got Michael, Freddie, Jason, and then I think some people would say Leatherface. Other people would argue who the fourth one is. But for me, uh, if we're going by those four that I mentioned, uh, Halloween 4 is probably the best sequel that any of them got. And ended, because you remember we watched 4 before we watched 5. Mm -hmm. And If I remember, you you didn't think 4 was that bad. I don't remember if you enjoyed it, but I remember you didn't think it was as bad as 5. Uh, no, I had a good time. And actually, I just checked also. I gave it 3 stars in the end. <laughs> I gave it as well, many stars as I did the original Halloween. <laughs> you know, honestly, there's in some aspects I like it as much as the original. Obviously, not in all, but in some. And the ending of it's so good with Jamie, like... You know, the, the idea of inheriting the curse and then five was just like, what the fuck is going on? And yeah. Then, well, there is a, then, I, I was going through it earlier, actually, for my, for two. The things that I like about two and four are, are what sets them apart, I think, from just what I consider the standard slasher. So for me, mm -hmm. I really like that two picked up right after the first one, like literally like right after, because at least in my experience, my limited slasher experience, that's not really something you see very often, the immediate fallout from a horror movie. So yeah. a lot of horrible stuff happens in John Carpenter's Halloween. And then Halloween 2 shows you how the town, how people react to the horrible things that happen, like basically almost, you know, so to speak, in real time, which I thought was really cool. Then the movie becomes mm -hmm. just a slasher movie, and I, I don't care as much. But th that element of it I thought was really cool. And then Halloween 4, what I really liked was that it, it just did away with the 
the standard bullshit where people have to convince each other that the threat is real. This was more yeah. in number four. It felt like everybody involved was fully aware of the threat that Michael Myers presented, which made sense because he's done this a few times already. <laughs> so it makes sense that you would be on full alert and that you would take it seriously from the very beginning. And that I felt also kind of set it apart from your average slasher slasher sequel. Now that of course kind of goes away with five and then six is just bonkers. But from what you were saying, though, it makes it sound like when they ended five on that cliffhanger, they didn't know what they were going to do. <laughs> Is that correct? As I've referenced in the previous three installments of Haddonfield Nights, uh, the book Taking Shape by Dustin McNeil and Travis Mullins has a very interesting insight to it. If it was up to completely the Weinsteins and, you know, uh, the director, Joe Chappelle, I don't think there would have been any correlation between the two. So I think the idea was they were just going to end it with something weird. And uh, they lucked into, at least Mustafa Akkad did, with a fan that uh, had kind of an idea of where they could take the story from there. But it wasn't, uh, you know, it wasn't the Lord of the Rings movies where they were all filmed at the same time <laughs> and kind of had a plan of where to go. I just came across a very, very interesting, you know, this is kind of, veering away from what you're discussing but going to what you were mentioning in uh contrarian's corner this entry here in the trivia section of the imdb page in which it states it is highly speculated by fans that Kara's father john bradford english is actually the father to danny his grandson Jesus because, Christ, I did not go that far, though. <laughs> because in the producer's cut, he pulls out a picture of Kara at work and very aggressively says, Happy Halloween, little girl, almost being sexually aggressive, as John is known to speak his mind a lot about things uh, without holding things back. However, he hesitates a bit when he calls Danny a little bastard, not because he knows it'll make Kara angry with him, but because it's his son, and deep down he knows it. Because Kara left for five years not explaining why to her family, she pops back up and John sees his five-year-old boy and knows deep down it's his kid and explains why she ran off. This also explains later how Kara knew that Stephen was Michael's baby because Michael was to Jamie what John was to Kara, a family relative who did something they really shouldn't have, but because they were under the influence, Michael was under the curse of the thorn, and John was an alcoholic. That is so fucking morbid. Jesus. But you know what the worst part is? It makes perfect sense. <laughs> <laughs> That's a bit much. But yeah, like as soon as you mentioned that, I was like, fuck, it is kind of sexual the way he says it. That, ugh, off-putting. Um, but man, that really... So I hate it. But at the same time, it really gives that, that moment between Kara and Michael at the end where, you know, when she says that, it really loads it in a way that, you know, because other than that, it's kind of silly <laughs> what, yeah. what she does. It. But now that you're giving her uh, an actual reason to make that connection and to say it and for him to react that way, that's, man, now this movie just got a lot more complex <laughs> in the span of five minutes. And again, to reiterate, we both watched the producer's cut, but we also uh, watched the cut comparison. Again, very well made by uh, James A. Janice on YouTube. And so, Julio, you can see what the big differences are, and they are plentiful. I think we'll kind of start with my final verdict before we break into this. What I think of this movie is that it is a massive swing and a miss, and it's not all through the fault of 
the writer. I mean, some of the acting is pretty brutal, but yep. I think it goes so batshit insane that I think there's something to it that could be salvaged. But the problem is we're talking about this shit like with the potential incest and well, some potential. There's definitely <laughs> incest. But um, like we were piecing things together in Contrarian's Corner that aren't pieced together for you in the movie. You have to like really think about and do research and discuss like the ins and outs of the Halloween canon to make sense of this movie. If you watch it just on its own, it makes no goddamn sense whatsoever. Even if you're like, obviously, you know, you came in here, not as big of a fan as me, but you have enough experience with the franchise to, you know, you'd be able to hold your own and piecing together the story. But with this, you have to do so much work for it to be at all comprehensible. So I think swing and a miss is the way I would describe it, but I do applaud the idea of specifically the screenwriter, uh, Daniel Farrens, because it seems like he was the only one really impassioned about it. Uh, Joe Chappelle, from what I could find, didn't care about the franchise and just thought he would use the name of it to you know, use it as a springboard to bigger, bigger and better things. I guess that's kind of what I want to start this discussion, because you had mentioned it would be interesting to have a comprehensive backstory uh, about Michael. <laughs> is this what you envisioned, Julio? <laughs> Uh, no, but <laughs> I I think it's really fascinating that kind of sort of by accident, I don't know, maybe you planned it this way. We have watched the two big swings and misses back to back. I think that a lot of what you just said could apply to Season of the Witch. In fact, we, we said it in the last episode, mm-hmm. right? This is, uh, you come into the franchise with a fresh idea that is very different from everything that's come before, uh, but you are not, you're still calling yourself your movie a halloween movie uh obviously with season the witch the yeah. departure was a lot more obvious because there was no michael myers there was there was nothing there was no haddonfield uh here you're at least keeping those elements but the story you're telling is like that quote i think i got on contrary's corner it's just so removed from what the franchise started as like you know the carpenter movie and even further just very removed from most of the sequels uh I think even if you go to five and the the end of five, the the clues, whatever they're trying to set up in five, is not enough to prepare you for where this goes. You know, like I said in Contreras Corner, this is about constellations giving Michael his his power. <laughs> it's just insane. Uh cults with marks and uh, you know, tattoos and, and uh it ends with Loomis being possessed, you know, even forgetting about the the incest, uh, whether it's implied or speculated, even if you forget about that part, which is also pretty out there, but just the the mythology and the explanation of what Michael Myers is, is so out there. I don't think that being out there makes it necessarily bad, just like I didn't think that uh, Season of the Witch not having Michael Myers, not being in Haddonfield, made it a bad movie. I think that you can make it work, but then again, you just fall on the execution, and the execution is just its just such a mess. And of course, when you know the backstory, what you were saying about the, the infighting uh, between the people making the movie, then it makes sense that it's just as, uh, as choppy, as kind of uh, really hard to follow or, you know, hard to make sense of uh, as it is when you had, I guess, people pulling in different directions. Because there's so much going on in this movie. That was one of my notes. There's so much going on. You have Tommy's story. You have Loomis's story. You have Kara's story. You have the cult story, which is, in a way, Michael's story. And this is all 90 minutes. I mean, there's no 
real time to develop anything. Thank God for uh, Donald Pleasance being the actor that he is and kind of having just carrying with him the history of everything we've seen Loomis do up till now. Because really, even though I watched the producer's cut, it felt like they really didn't do much with him. You know, considering how big a part of the franchise he is, for this to be his his going away movie, he doesn't really get as much as he should have. And I can only imagine how much worse it is when you watch the theatrical, which basically cut most of him out. Mm Mm-hmm. Paul Rudd, I mean, he he seems to be the closest to somebody that's driving the story. Even then, I mean, you know, we don't get enough to really get a feel for him. It, it, again, there's a lot of just shorthand in his character. We we kind of just get it because he was Tommy Doyle and we saw him in the first movie. And it's like, okay, of course he's traumatized. But really, beyond his obsession with figuring out how to kill Michael or how to stop Michael, I don't really get anything else. Like, is he really just, is that really what his life is? Because if that's the case, as intense as Paul Rudd is acting, he he seems pretty well adjusted, right? Mm-hmm. And then you have the entire drama with the Strodes, which feels like they alone could have just carried like a full movie. You know, again, we just get glimpses and nothing really gets resolved uh, in a satisfying way. It's just like, oh, well, then they get killed. And then there's, actually, I almost forgot, then there's the whole thing with, uh, with not Howard Stern, right? Where... It seems like the movie... So stupid. It's stupid, but it's also... Now, this I was actually asking for in a way. uh, I think it was uh, when we did the first Halloween. uh, The idea that you would see Haddonfield respond to the things that have happened. And I mean, I wasn't asking for this specifically, but at least the idea that you have uh, a community that has stopped celebrating Halloween because of what happened in the town. And that now Mm -hmm. they've reached a point where they're rebelling and they want to... They want to celebrate Halloween, damn it. And uh, and there's this radio host that's kind of taking advantage of that situation to to boost his numbers. It's dumb, but at least it's something that I can see. You know, if you developed an entire movie about that, that could have been another installment of, uh, of the Halloween anthology. You don't need Michael Myers to tell this story, but you can tell the story of a, a community that's going through this and then a serial killer you know takes advantage of the situation i don't know but there's again there's that's a completely different plot thread that gets thrown in here and it's just the movie the story is fighting to go in so many different ways and it doesn't really pursue any of them in a satisfactory way i i felt i mean it just feels really dumb when uh they're what's the name of the the dj barry yeah when barry is interviewing beth and and tim and beth says uh She's acting like she has a plan, like she has something that she really wants to say. And then what she says is just something like, we're not going to let the establishment tell us what to do anymore. <laughs> it's just, yeah. it's really dumb. But but if you actually develop that into something interesting, I mean, you could, you know, you could make it sound better. Uh, but overall, yeah, it's it's just such a mess. I I said, thank God for Donald Pleasant and thank God for Paul Rudd. Uh, because, yeah, they both do a lot with very little. Uh, can you imagine... If this, if it wasn't Paul Rudd playing Tommy Doyle, I, here's the thing: I've heard the excitement in your voice whenever Tommy Doyle comes up, and I understand oh, yeah. it because it has to be because of Paul Rudd's performance here, and because you know they bring back the character and they give him stuff to do and all that. But if if it wasn't Paul Rudd, you know, if it was just kind of a, if if the performance 
of the actor playing Tommy Doyle was more in line with what we've seen and you know from most performers in Halloween do you think that you would think of the character as fondly you would be as excited to point out Tommy Doyle when he shows up in the Rob Zombie Halloween or you know when he shows up in the in the original I I don't think so right I mean he hasn't no. the character doesn't really make an impression until you get to part six and he makes an impression because Paul Rudd is playing him like a champ exactly it's the novelty of it all and like we talked about in Contrarian's Corner is somewhat and kind of you touched on a little bit speaking to genuinely it's a it's a cool idea the idea that the, fuck yeah this kid would be traumatized if he lived through that when he was eight years old and so you know the idea that he went full um Travis Bickle with it and just kind of obsessed <laughs> about it and turned his whole like living situation into a shrine to it I think Paul Stephen Rudd here Man, I don't know. He he definitely looks fresh out of film school or you know acting school with this in terms of just like how hard he's going for it. And it is the novelty of that because he went on to be fucking Paul Rudd, not just blowing smoke because we're talking about him right now. One of my favorite actors ever. To me, one of the funniest actors I've ever seen perform. And um, it's always really cool to see some people's humble beginnings, especially in that industry, especially with a guy like Paul Rudd, who by all accounts seems to be a genuinely good dude. Obviously you and I don't know him, but he's, you know, obviously with all the stuff that got brought up with the Me Too movement, he was not one of the people named and by every interview I've seen with him and just people's accounts by him seems to be a good dude. So it's cool to see his humble beginnings be entwined in something that I have such an affinity for, that being the Halloween franchise. And to me, yes, when I discuss this franchise and the name Tommy Doyle comes up, it's it's Paul Rudd that comes to mind for me. <laughs> Seems as good a time as any to segue to uh, Paul Rudd himself discussing the matter uh, in an interview he did with Ain't It Cool News in August of 2007. Probably would have been promoting Knocked Up at that point in time. Uh, it's just kind of talking about what he has going on, uh, talks about his career and whatnot. It's a pretty informal interview, uh, but then it eventually leads to the uh, interviewer bringing up uh, Michael Myers and, you know, side note, Paul's first film role was in Halloween six curse of Michael Myers. And he asked uh, Paul Rudd, was that not a good experience as a young actor? And so this is what Paul Rudd had to say. You know what? The funny thing is that it was good. That was the very first movie I'd ever done. And I'm really thrilled that I was able to do it. There was something trippy about working on a Halloween movie and seeing Michael Myers and seeing that face that I had seen in movies and to meet George Wilbur, who played him, and standing at the craft service table having coffee with Michael Myers. That was so cool. When it first came out, I was in my early 20s. It was a time in my life when I was really precious. I thought not that I was into taking myself too serious or anything, but I so badly wanted to be in really cool things. And all of my favorite things as far as music and movies were all kind of, you know, independent movies and foreign movies. My favorite bands were these sort of alternate indie rockers and stuff like that. I just really wanted to be liked. And I think I probably took things a little too seriously, as it's easy to do when you're at that age. And when I first saw Halloween 6, I remember thinking, oh God, this movie's not good. And I was really kind of <laughs> bummed out. In fact, when we first started making it, I remember thinking, oh, this one is going to be different. I enjoyed making it. I thought it was really, really fun. But then I thought, oh, God, are people going to think I'm a joke? Am I ever going to get work as an actor after this comes out? I've since changed my tune. I love it. I'm honored to be a part of a franchise that has lasted so long, that has had so many devotees, and I couldn't be happier that I can say my first movie is a Halloween movie. 
I think that's a pretty mature stance. Obviously, it's easy for him to do being you know an A-list actor at this point, but I think that's a pretty mature stance to have on it. Right. When you're when you're wearing Ant Man's suit, it's easy to just look fondly at your beginnings and not have any regrets. Whereas um, Marianne Hagen may be like, "Fuck that godforsaken movie." <laughs> Humorously enough, the interview went on to say, uh, "The guy's like, well, if acting ever dries up, you can book yourself on the convention circuit." And Paul Rudd said he's. He said he was never asked to be a part of one, which he found depressing. Um, <laughs> I did find he was signed at one point in time. I think it was 2012, maybe uh, somewhere in that time period. He was going to do a horror con with the rest of the cast of Halloween 6, uh, but obligations pulled him. It had to have been some kind of scheduling conflict because everything, all the money he made, he was going to immediately donate to charity from it. So, oh, um, yeah. That makes sense, too. I hear about that all the time with, like, A-list actors. Um, Like Johnny Depp, for example, when New Nightmare came out, Wes Craven didn't even ask him to be in it because he just thought he would have said no. And then Johnny Depp asked Wes Craven when he saw him after the movie came out why he didn't ask him to be in it. (laughs) So, like, I assume that's a real thing with people like Paul Rudd uh, and people of that tier that people think they're just immediately going to say no so they never even ask him to do these things. I'm not saying Paul Rudd would do a horror convention tomorrow if you asked him to, but I'd be interested to see. Uh, You know, like Jamie Lee Curtis does them every now and again, so you never know. I can say if we ever get past this godforsaken pandemic, I would be willing to travel for a horror convention that Paul Rudd was signing Tommy Doyle 8x10s at. Yep. Uh, So I would fucking go with you. I can't believe I'm saying that, but yeah. Paul Rudd? Yeah. All of that to come back to the original point, this movie is an absolute mess. And man, Donald Pleasance obviously is the glue because he is the best actor in this movie. And then watching it through 2020 lenses, it's the novelty of Paul Rudd being in there. And he is not bad. He's bad because we know how good he is now. We've used that phrase, the lump of clay. Mm-hmm. He, I would say like there's potential there. He's fine in this, but like, for example, we've seen better performances from lesser actors in these movies. Like Daniel Harris in the 2007 one is better than he is in this. Would you agree with that? Yes, but I think also that the movie asks less of her. You know, it's like he, yeah. he's Paul Rudd is put in a very sticky situation here because he is being act, asked to perform such nonsense. <laughs> so. <laughs> I don't think there's a man fucking Leonardo DiCaprio couldn't even pull off the the power of the runes stopped him. <laughs> yeah, I think that there are points where I I mean I wouldn't blame him. He must have just given up. It was like this is as good as it can be. And there's no point trying any harder because even if I give it the best performance ever, it's still a very stupid line or a very stupid moment. So uh but he has that charisma. I think that that's what really wins you over. You know, just some people just have that when you say that the camera loves them. You know, that, I think that that's the case with him here. Uh, it, it was the case with uh, Jamie Lee Curtis in, in the original. Even when they're not firing on all cylinders, they can hold your attention because they're just inherently charismatic. Uh, so that was that was a real coup, I think, when they cast Tommy Doyle and they got Paul Rudd to do it because that was just great. You got half the job done already just by having this guy in front of the camera. Yes, he's. I mean, he's trying too hard to be intense, but but then it's not like the script is giving him much more to do. Yeah, uh, yeah. Danielle Harris. I mean, yeah, she comes across great in in the 2007 Halloween, but but 
what she's asked to do is just be a normal girl. So, of course, I mean, I'm not saying that that's True. not a job. I mean, obviously, but but at least she could she had the reality to fall back on. Paul Rudd is, again, it, it, he isn't probably the most ridiculous Halloween story so far. I mean, out of the ones I've seen. So that that's going to be hard. But I think it's pretty endearing that when he was making it, his thought was like, oh, this one's going to be different. <laughs> It's well, the, the quite another story always. The story always was uh, whoever his first agent or you know uh, his people, as they say, were told him to take Clueless for the payday, but Halloween was going to be his springboard, huh. and uh, yeah, kind of worked backwards. But yeah, it's just kind of funny to think of the varying degrees of acting we've seen from these movies so far. It's it is definitely you know it defines uh, or it is a physical embodiment of the phrase peaks and valleys. I would say. Yeah. Um, uh, thinking about it though, I do think Idris Elba could pull off the line. It was the power of the runes that stopped him. <laughs> yes, but then, then the rest of the movie would just crumble around him and around that moment. <laughs> you know, that's the sacrifice you make in order to make that line work with Idris Elba. That means that everything else is going to look like bullshit. You have to keep that level at all times, and that's just not possible. To me, probably the most interesting train of thought during this entire movie was me trying to figure out what Donald Pleasance's reaction was to reading the script, getting the script the first time, or being explained what the pitch of the movie was. Because I haven't really seen that many behind-the-scenes, you know, things with them. You know, our friend Ben Mm -hmm. from Filmbusters, uh, he sent us a little clip of... Uh, Pleasant's talking about Loomis in the original Halloween, I think. And uh, mm-hmm. he seemed fairly like, you know, it was not like he was taking it super seriously. And he seemed to acknowledge that, well, this is not actual reality. You know, my character is not behaving the way that your standard doctor would behave or whatever. But seeing how he is in two, four, and five, and then, you know, six, I kept thinking, at what point did he just decided that for his own sanity he needed to stop caring about any of it making sense i mean and i don't know maybe he he was doing for the paycheck or maybe he had developed like a love for the franchise by now where he would just go and do it no matter what maybe it was just a matter of pride he was like well i'm still alive and dr loomis is gonna be in a halloween movie because that's that's how it goes i don't know just the idea of this actor who like you said is easily the best of the lot and who has proven himself over and over in this franchise and it feels like they keep asking him to go even further to just take another leap of faith into the unknown <laughs> with the way that the <laughs> franchise is going. I I just wish I knew I had like a, a insight into what was going on through his mind. You know, was he angry? Was he happy that he didn't have that many scenes? Was he disappointed that he didn't get to do much in this movie? Was he excited by the potential of a sequel where he gets to be the bad guy? I don't know. I I, I wish that we knew the answer to those questions and maybe they exist. I don't know. You, you, you have more knowledge of the Halloween lore than I do. Based on just like the research, the minimal research I did specifically on that topic. And also just kind of like over the years, like things I have seen where he talks about it. And, uh, I think four has like a making of documentary on the Blu-ray. And for this one, I read a clip, a quote from him saying like, he thought it was a good script and he was excited to work on it, which (laughs) brain must've been starting to go. But, um, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I think because he was a respected actor when he did the first one, and I don't mean to say that he was not respected from doing these movies. I think, I think, and we've seen this in the ones we've covered, he obviously becomes more and more 
Loomis as the franchise goes on and more and more devoted to it because he's just pretty tame in the first one. Whose grave is that? You go from that to and the beginning of part two. I shot him six times, six times, <laughs> and then you know by the end of this, I'm just like screaming. It's um, I think he still kept his pride as an actor, but realized monetarily uh, what this these movies would do for not just him but his family. I think he was a proud actor that viewed this as something he was fortunate to be a part of. If he were still with us today, I I think he'd probably have, uh, you know similar things to say to Paul Rudd of like, uh, you know, I've obviously done a lot with my career, uh, but this is something I'm proud that, to say that I was a part of. And especially more so in Donald Pleasant's case than Paul Rudd, it uh, put his kids through college to say the very <laughs> least, or his grandkids through college. At no point, even as batshit insane as this movie is, do you feel like he doesn't care? Uh, I think, like you said, we got Loomis rocking the shit. Paul Rudd is going for what he can. Mitchell Ryan for his small parts pretty good. Mm-hmm. I thought uh Bradford English is uh for being a drunk asshole, he does a good job. <laughs> Everyone else looks like they would rather be doing anything else in their with their time. <laughs> Marianne Hagen, she looks miserable this entire movie. And you know, it's funny we're saying that cuz we point out like the two obviously Rudd wasn't at the time, but we the the two highest billed actors in it are the ones giving the most, which in some situations that's where we would jo- like um, when we did the Hangover Three. Bradley Cooper, top billed actor in the movie, looks like he would rather be fucking clipping his grandma's toenails <laughs> instead of being in that movie. And then with this, you know, the the two people the most notoriety deliver the goods, whereas everyone else just looks miserable. I mean, and then like uh, James A. Janice pointed out, it sounds like, unfortunately, the people involved in this movie weren't too complimentary of uh, Marianne Hagen. Uh, I don't know if they, you know, if that translated to them, actually, their actual interactions with her, but uh, you know, they said they cut her time on screen because she was too skinny. I had read uh, J.C. Brandy, the actress who played Jamie Lloyd, was treated poorly because they couldn't get Danielle Harris to appear which there's kind of a convoluted story to that I'll touch on before we wrap this up. But Donald Pleasance, Paul Rudd, and Mitchell Ryan, fine. I don't know if you agree with me. Brad, Brad for the English, too. But I, I felt like everyone else was just either acting in a different movie or looked like they didn't want to be there. Yeah, well, I think that there was... I think in some cases, I agree. Uh, Marianne... Oh, what's her last name? I feel so bad because, you know, it's like the movie already treated Hagen. her poorly enough. And then we... <laughs> I agree. She looks. She looks like she's feeling sick through most of the movie. And I know some scenes call for her to act that way, but I think in general, yeah, you get the vibe that she's not having a good time. You know, especially when you compare her with the actors that are on their A game or as much of their A game as they can. Uh, but then there's some that just looks like they, you know, they, they got actors that were still pretty green. And, uh, and then when you match them with actors that can actually, that have more experience or that are a little more uh, natural from the beginning, then it, they suffer so i you know like the not so much the brother tim but i thought beth was not that the character has much to do but i felt like you know beth the mom the little kid danny they were just Oof. yeah it's very rare that you get uniform levels of talent across an entire movie but in this case uh the gaps are a little more noticeable or a lot more noticeable and that's definitely mm-hmm you know just affects your experience how do you feel about the dj guy because honestly i i mean i didn't take him seriously enough to really 
consider his performance either good or bad, I guess. You know, I think he did the job. Again, he's such a big part of the of the movie in a way because he's all throughout. You hear him talking. He's a local legend. He's like the fucking Rex Manning of this movie. Just this <laughs> fictional character they made up. Awful. Awful. I appreciate the idea of it all, and I know that that some fucking Miramax focus group or some Weinstein thing, of we need a Howard Stern character to be in it, but just... <laughs> And see, I've never thought Howard Stern was funny. So I think I'm already like, it's playing against what I like. I, I take it back. I mean, he said things that are funny. One of my favorite bits ever from Futurama is when Fry goes to New York City, but it's obviously, it's underground and abandoned because it's a thousand years in the future. He's like, I'm in New York and I can finally do what I've always wanted to. And he runs and he stands on like a mailbox and he just screams, Howard Stern is overrated. Uh, that's... <laughs> That's something I agree with. So the, the the trope of the shock jock is already wasted on me. And then you add on to it here, Leo Geter, Getter. Mm-hmm. Sorry, brother. Probably a nice guy. Maybe not. <laughs> you do nothing for me in this movie. All the dialogue he has when he's on the radio and they're listening to it and shit is just all so forced. And like that scene where we... I every time we see it, I just get so excited because I know Loomis is about to show up on his typewriter that I'm able to just drone out that like long forty second period of the radio. Uh, but but yeah, do you think do you think he's maybe the most nineties element of the movie, or at least of the producer Scott? Yeah, that or the brother, the Tim Strode, just the way he's dressed and his mannerisms and the things he says. Uh, God, I just re- kids today, uh, they wouldn't even know what a shock jock is. <laughs> they wouldn't even understand that trope. I just realized that if you showed this to like someone who was 15 right now, they wouldn't understand that character. Uh, I mean, maybe there's like podcast equivalents. I was about to like say, that, well, but. because I went to Joe Rogan before I went to Howard Stern, but that's because I never, even though I know of Howard Stern, uh, I've never, just based on the few things I've heard and I've seen, I've never really felt the need to even you know, listen to the show or to try it out. You know, I just know it's not my thing. I think if nothing, not that I listen to Rogan's podcast either, but I, I think I've had more exposure to it. Should. Uh, but yeah, but to me, that was like the, the you know, I went instantly to like, okay, you know, so somebody that would just be playing uh, at different, in different parts of the city. Cause that's, I think maybe that's what I like about the device early on that mm-hmm. through his show, you get to check in on Paul Rudd and, Donald Pleasance and Jamie as she's escaping. And I thought that was kind of ingenious. But in order to make sense of it, you know, it's like, how could you have somebody that is being listened to at the train station and also Paul Rudd is listening to him and also Donald Pleasance is listening to him, you know? And I was, my mind, I guess, tried to rationalize who had that kind of appeal. And I didn't go to, uh, <laughs> I didn't go to Stern. I went to Rogan. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah, this was uh, definitely Stern. Uh, Julio. What if I told you that there is a alternate timeline where Quentin Tarantino wrote this movie? I would believe it because there's an alternate timeline where Tarantino's final movie is a Star Trek movie. So with Tarantino's concerned, anything goes. Anything's possible. Well, Quentin is a big fan of the franchise. And uh, in 1994, when they were trying to find someone to write this, at one point, he was attached to it. Now, there is, there's been an urban legend that he wrote a script for the movie, which is not true. But at one point in time, he was potentially going to make this. So think about that. In like, I think this movie started filming in like March of 94, uh, somewhere in there. No, it was the fall of 94, I believe. So anyway, 
the idea of like him working on a Halloween movie parallel to like Pulp Fiction, which is just hilarious to me. But he did an interview last year around the time of marketing or um, I guess campaigning for uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Did an interview with uh, consequencesofsound.net and kind of similarly to uh, the Paul Rudd interview. It wasn't like this the focus of it, but it eventually came up. And he talked about how much he loved the original Halloween and thought the sequel sucked. And uh, <laughs> the interviewer brought up, you were attached uh, for six at one point. And sorry, listeners, I'm refraining from doing my Tarantino impression when answering these questions. But he said, Our loss. He said, Yeah, well, way before I'd ever done anything. It would have been if I had done it. I never got hired, but it would have been my job to figure out who the guy in the boots was. <laughs> the interviewer said, Exactly, because the director of Five had no idea. They were just like, Ah, let's just put him in it. And Tarantino said, Yeah, I was like, Leave that scene where the man in black shows up, all right, and freeze Michael Myers. And so the only thing I had in my mind, I still hadn't figured out who that dude was, was like the first 20 minutes, it would have been the Lee Van Cleef dude and Michael Myers on the highway, on the road, and they stop at coffee shops and shit, and wherever Michael Myers stops, he kills everybody. So they're like leaving a trail of dead bodies on Route 66. (laughs) I would watch it. It would have been great. I'm sure. And then he went on to put over the Rob Zombie Halloweens in a very weird aspect. Essentially, he said the first time I watched it, I hated it, and then I rewatched it and I liked it. But um, <laughs> that's one of those things that sounds so weird. It has to be true uh, in terms of like at one point he could have been. The movie started like toying around in '93, so it wouldn't have been necessarily been concordant with uh, Pulp Fiction. But still, the idea is humorous. Uh, kind of wrapping up here. To me, the notable omission. I'm not saying this would have saved the movie, but it it does. It really sucks they couldn't get Danielle Harris in there because she was so good as Jamie in 4 and 5. Even, you know, 5 is so bad, and what they do with her is just so stupid. Like, the uh, that whole idea, you know, you see this in wrestling so often, and, the uh, you know, someone's great at interviews or great at talking. Oh, let's make their character a mute. And that's exactly Jamie in part 5. It's like mm-hmm. she was so good in 4 in terms of delivering dialogue and being believable as a little kid. So in 5, let's just make it where she can't talk. <laughs> but I would have enjoyed to see her resurface. It seemed like there had been a bit of drama with that in that uh, she wanted to reclaim her role as Jamie but turned it down when Dimension refused to pay her the $5,000 she wanted. Seems like a pretty modest salary, in my opinion, but, you know, what do I know? Especially um, now. <laughs> yeah. Harris stated in an interview that when her agent learned that filmmakers were looking to cast an actress who was at least 18 or older to play Jamie in the film, uh, she was only 17 but wanted to do the movie enough that she got herself legally emancipated from her parents at the suggestion of the filmmakers so she could work longer hours without having to go to school. Harris spent time and thousands of dollars on the legal process but ultimately turned down the film due to her own dissatisfaction with her character's story and Dimension's refusal to pay her salary that would have recovered her legal fees. Harris also stated that she eventually met and befriended J.C. Brandy. Uh, And that's, yeah, where she brought up that she was treated poorly because of how everything went with Harris, which is like, that does sound like just Hollywood bullshit or just political bullshit of treating someone poorly, like just because they got the same role that someone that was hard to work with did. Um, so two things that's really fucked up of a thing to go through, especially at that age. And then two, uh, I wish she could have seen the script before she went through all that. So she could have made, made that decision when she made that decision. Tarantino was still attached to the project. (laughs) 
Danielle, man, we're going to take the Jamie character, right? You're going to learn how to drive a car in a bunker, okay? Um, <laughs> or that doesn't even exist in the theatrical cut because she gets impaled. Oh, no, she still is abducted and she gets impaled on that fucking wheat thrasher. To me, the car chase that Jamie goes on with Michael in this movie is hilarious because still, like, it has that same idea of, you, you know, how did Michael learn how to drive? Well, Jamie was abducted when she was like 12 and held captive by this cult, and yet she knows how to drive this truck. It's uh, the the Myers genes, man. You just know how to race right out the gate. <laughs> I hadn't even thought about that, but uh, I don't know. She was a precautious girl. Maybe she did learn before, you know, before we saw her in four. She already had some practice. I don't know. <laughs> Anything goes in the in the Halloween verse, uh, as it's proven true. by Halloween six. <laughs> As definitively proven, like like you said, we go from the shape just being this uh, interesting, you know, kind of character of man. Why is this guy crazy? To in this one talking about, I'm surprised we didn't talk about his fucking astrology sign at some point. Yeah, in this. and to answer the question that you posed to me, and I actually, I, I guess I didn't really give you the answer. No, this is not what I was asking for. <laughs> <laughs> just to spell it out specifically. Yes, I was asking for some. I mean. I guess it fits in the sense that it is an explanation, <laughs> but but it's not the explanation to the mystery post in Halloween, the original. When you're watching Carpenter's Halloween, you don't ex- there's no way that you buy if that movie ended with a reveal that Michael was holding the power of the stars in him and that's what was, you know, making him evil and killing and everything. It, it, that wouldn't you wouldn't buy it. It was like, well, this doesn't fit. It doesn't even really fit five movies later, but it's a little easier to stomach because by then we've seen a lot of ridiculous shit go on. Uh, but when I was talking about the question about like the the, the tantalizing uh, possibility of learning what was making Michael tick, I was talking about the Michael from John Carpenter's Halloween and then obviously to an extent Rob Zombie's Halloween, right? The, the, the Michael that is not this supernatural creature necessarily, but more just like a little kid that went crazy and, and started killing people. I don't even need like uh, an actual answer, but I, I need people to, to do what Paul Rudd was doing in Halloween six, or I guess in the interim between, you know, Halloween one and Halloween six, which is like, he just spent time trying to figure out, of course he went the cosmic route and I just wanted somebody <laughs> to base it in reality a little more. Uh, but yeah, no, this is not what I asked for. I guess it's what <laughs> welcome, some people Welcome wanted. back to my side of the argument. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, I think it's, it's it's hilarious that it was written by a fan because, yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. this, it is, if you break it down to its basic elements, it's it's Halloween fan fiction. But it's Halloween fan yeah. fiction that got made into a movie. <laughs> yeah. And I think that does speak to why it has an impassioned fan base because I think a lot of people that really love this movie do get swept up in the whole idea of it all. The idea of the the, fan, the, the Strode family tree. And I think that there is something endearing about a, a fan that made, you know, something into reality, even though this the, his script was bastardized so much for the theatrical version. But tripping over my words to say, I get it. <laughs> I get why people love it. I am not one of those people. I find it to be a really fun novelty it's a movie that i it's 90 minutes so again it's not a waste of time every time you know halloween movies come around i'm way more eager to watch this again than you know say rob zombies or uh i'd probably prefer this over five just because we have the the paul rudd aspect to it and it's the 
Loomis's final chapter, <laughs> Logan Loomis. It is what it is, and it provides a very interesting stop here uh, as we move along to the final two entries in Haddonfield Nights, uh, next being H2O, Halloween H2O, and then finally the 2018 uh, Halloween that was a direct sequel to uh, the original, which, of course, H2O is a direct sequel to Halloween 2. So a lot of this shit we've been talking about is immediately about to be retconned. <laughs> And um, are you telling me there's no Tommy Doyle in uh, Halloween H2O? No, I did read for Halloween Kills, I believe, is the upcoming one. The one that was supposed to come out this year, but was delayed due to, oh, the pandemic. That's what it was. Um, <laughs> if I read correctly, they had reached out to Paul Rudd to reprise his role oh as God. Tommy Doyle. And he turned it down. Any guess who will be playing Tommy Doyle in next year's movie? Uh, fuck. So it would have to be because, yeah, they're like real time age there. So, oh, I don't know. Seth Rogen, James Franco. <laughs> don't you forget about him. It's Anthony Michael Hall. Wow. Yeah, I can see it. Judy Greer, of course, will be back in that. Uh, God bless. I can't wait till we get to discussing that. And they're bringing back Lindsay Wallace as well, who was the the girl that was with her, played by Kyle Richards, and I'm not familiar with her. We'll cross that bridge when we come to it. <laughs> All this we're talking about is about to be irrelevant on our next episode. For the intents and purposes of now, that was Halloween 666, Halloween, the Curse of Michael Myers. Quite the interesting uh, stop on this road of Halloween. What's, and, uh, what's your score? Uh, it's a D. It, you know, there, there's the things about it that are redeeming, and I'm inclined because they were able to salvage something better with the producer's cut. I was almost going to give it a C, but it still is a mess. It's it's hard to make, you know, much from it. I think, like I said, even by accident, there are some cool things to it, like the shots we talked about Michael being completely out of focus, but his presence is still clear. That's really cool. I can't decide if it's actually scary or funny how he's just standing there at the cult ritual in full Michael regalia. But I really do like that. I, I don't know why, but I pop every time that shot comes up. And then aside from the original and the 2018 Halloween, this is the best mask. So, so you really like the mask on this one? I thought you were, you were kidding. So the, yeah, the hair is a bit of a problem because yeah. it's all wild and bushy, but the actual mask itself, and eh, the Rob Zombie one looks pretty cool in the first uh, Halloween too. But um, it, it, okay, lower <laughs> echelon of movies, higher echelon of masks. <laughs> yeah. So a D for me, whereas um, the Julio Constellation would show how many stars for Halloween 6. You know, I'm I'm wavering between one and a half and two. It, one and I feel comfortable with one and a half because I gave Halloween five one, and this is better than five. I don't know that I would ever watch it again, though. It's like, all right, done mm-hmm. it. I, I I would watch the clip of uh, Loomis screaming at the end. That would I would watch, you know, a hundred times, if, if, <laughs> if not more. But the rest, it's I just had that experience, and and I think that the novelty of seeing Paul Rudd that early on you know, would be gone next time I watch it. Yeah. At the same time, man, you really blew my mind with that piece of trivia that kind of sort of connected the dots between uh, <laughs> Papa Strode and and Kara and Danny and Michael. That, that bit of writing, as disturbing and off-putting as it is, it's kind of great. 
and it bothers me now because it's just it's too good or, or it makes so much more sense than the rest of the movie so if that was intentional and now the more i think about it it's like it can't not be intentional right there's no way that they accidentally mm-hmm. set up all these things that could be read a certain way uh, fuck it i'm gonna say two stars i'll probably regret it later but two stars just purely because of that bit of trivia that's really what tipped the scales <laughs> i think we can both agree even though you've never seen the theatrical one and it's been well over 15 years since i have uh this makes a little bit more sense than that um that cut comparison is a really great if you, if you haven't seen this movie I don't think it's a waste of time. If you do decide to watch it, be sure you pull up that cut comparison on YouTube just for the sake of uh, seeing really how much they fucked up this movie just to get more gore in it and try to score more viewers. That concludes this. So up next will be uh, H2O going to 1998 with, my God, what a hell of a 1998 cast. we got Michelle Williams, Josh Hartnett, LL Cool J, Young handsome and virile joseph gordon levitt showing up and then of course uh, jamie lee's return to the franchise so that'll be fun uh, i've seen that movie one time Ooh. and i was making out the whole time it was going on so i have n- <laughs> n- no no recollection of it whatsoever <laughs> going uh, in fresh you and i will have the same experience pretty much all i remember is that they had to go in and like cg change the mask so like there's some scenes where it looks just like utter dog shit so that's up next but uh, I think we have covered Halloween 6 I I say a lot of times uh, on episodes that we record you will not find a more comprehensive piece on this particular movie that is not the case for Halloween 6 there is way too much literature uh, you know documentary footage and uh, just overall uh, fan response to it that we have just scratched you know the tip of the iceberg as they say if ever so inclined, there is the on YouTube. They do have the electronic press kit that was sent out for this movie, and it has Paul Rudd explaining the Tommy Doyle character. It's magnifique. Oh God, I love so, it. So, in conclusion, wrapping up as we come to an end here, we want to start off as always by giving a thanks to the Festive Years who provide our opening and closing tracks, uh, kicking us off with Last Stand. They bring us home with Summer of '99. Be sure to head over to thefestiveyears.com for any and all Festive Years needs. Our logo, the seasonal and the original, and also some new stuff that's coming up pretty soon, all designed by our friend and fellow podcaster Hans Rothgieser. Hans is a multi-talented man. He is an artist, obviously. He's also a writer. He writes novels, most of them zombie novels. He has a new one called Zomos Zombies, which is a collection anthology of short stories uh, about zombies. Uh, all written by different Peruvian authors. He's also a podcaster. He has three podcasts. He has Nación Combi and Marginal. Those are both in Spanish. One about Peruvian current affairs, one about economy, because he's also an economist. You can find those on any podcatcher. And then you can find his podcast in English, Living in Peru, on iVox. If you want to reach him for anything, for logos, for comics, to talk to him about his books, or about his podcast, just find him on Twitter at Mildemonios, that's M-I-L-D-E-M-O-N-I-O-S, or you can email him at mildemonios at hotmail.com, or you can check out his website, mildemonios.pe. As has become customary, I want to give a special thank you to Zoe Perez for helping with our social media game, making things all pretty, Instagram post, Facebook page, helping expand our audience and making it look good while we do it. So that wraps it up for this most recent stop in Haddonfield Nights. Four down, two to go. 
that is going to do it for us here on The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong, and we will catch you next time. Summer of 1999